Subculture Podcast. They belong to a sinister secret society. I'm Steve Colescott, your host. There's something about that guy's tone of voice I don't like. I'm often referred to as the gorilla journalist. It's true that he has quite a temper and that he takes a little too much personal initiative. And author of numerous articles on nutritional theory and the training of powerlifters, bodybuilders, and elite strength athletes. Let me see if I got this whole thing straight now. You're a writer. Get ready for Iron Subculture, the authority on hardcore lifting. I love the feeling of being strong, I love being powerful, I love being big, but I just love being in the gym. Everyone wants to be the best, and there's certain goals that I know I've got to hit to give this up. Hopefully I don't kill myself beforehand. Most of the time I was doing most of the crazy lifting in the gym. I envision the weeks laughing at me, and it kind of makes me angry. Don't train memory, don't train maximally. We work out very hard. We work out as heavy as we can, and we train with intensity. I still have a lot of fire inside. Killing instincts inside, and uh, that will to win. I'll begin subconscious teaching at this time. Welcome to the second episode of the Iron Subculture Podcast. First off, you know, there's obviously been a long gap between this and the previous episode, and I apologize for that. But I want to thank you for the overwhelming support I received on that first episode. You know, I, I just got tons of emails um, from various people. And, and some people in the industry, I'm going to name three three names. Kurt James, Shelby Starnes, and Caleb Ralston, all three of them, uh, as well as, as a number of other people, gave me excellent support, got out the word on what I'm doing, and uh, gave me some good advice for things that I can do to, to improve this in the future. To get back to the to the the gap between the episodes, let me let me kind of explain a little bit of the background. Many of you that that know of my background know that I've worked uh, for about twenty years as a writer in the industry, and and more recently I've I've spent uh, a couple of years as a consultant for for two different uh, very popular online sites. Um, and, and I liked most of what both of them were doing, but I had some ideas on on some things that I would like to to do differently. So I put together basically a, a large web content package in which the podcast is maybe like 10% of that. And as soon as that first episode was done, I, I presented this to a number of companies. In the course between episode one and two, I had worked on business partnerships with uh, with two different companies. And, and the first of them was a large supplement distributor from the Chicago area. Um, boy, after about four months of, of planning everything and, and negotiating, it, it kind of fell apart by 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 no fault of of either of ours. Just um, some things with that company kind of became a little less less um, workable. Uh, and then after that, um, I was talking to one of the major newsstand magazines, and and um, neither of those partnerships worked out. Um, I, I would have enjoyed partnering with either of those companies. I, I really like the the people in charge at, at both companies, and, and things ended on a very nice basis with 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 both. And I'm going to work with them in some capacity to kind of support one another. Um, I tend to wish, though, that I I would have uh, just kept knocking out episodes. I plan to continue doing this on my own, 
invested my own time and money, and, and I, I plan to get at least one or two of these to you a month. With this episode, it's going to be kind of getting back on the bike. One of the, the benefits, had I continued doing these, I think I think by now I would have been a bit more smooth at the delivery of, uh, of my end of things, but that's something that, that I think you're going to see um, a pretty steep learning curve in the future. When this episode is posted up, I have a couple of other companies that I'm speaking to. I'm going to uh, d- discuss a partnership, and, and once that kicks off, um, you'll see this in a, in a very consistent bi-monthly schedule, and I'll be providing a ton of daily content that's at a higher quality than is available anywhere else. And over the past year, I've pretty much archived a year's worth of work that I can present to really kick off um, a website of that nature. But in this episode, let's talk about what we've got here. We start off with a In the Trenches where we speak to NABA USA national champion Jose de Jesus. Then I go and I talk to two-time WPC World Champion Powerlifter Eric Marosher of Monster Garage Gym. Uh, In our recommended read segment, I talk to Skip Hill, who wrote Maximize Recovery During Contest Prep for the Muscle Mag site. Also did an interview with PhD candidate Bill Willis, who co-authored with John Meadows an article called Maximize Protein Synthesis that appeared on the T-Nation site, and those are both uh, great articles. This episode's classic clip comes from powerlifter, wrestler, actor, strongman Mike Miller. Mike always has interesting things to say. In our Psyche segment, I speak to my old friend Buddy Dremen. He discusses the power of a focused mind. We're not going to have Alan Aragon doing a research review this episode, We hope to have him back next because his segment was very popular. Our feature interview this episode, though, is with Scott Stevenson. Scott is one of the most knowledgeable authorities in the industry. Um, He is, of course, a champion bodybuilder, having won the Arizona Championship. He's trained with with names like uh, Dave Henry and and other top uh, people. He has his doctorate in exercise physiology. And then went on from there to become an expert in Chinese herbal medicine and a licensed acupuncturist. So he's got, you know, two very different disciplines that he combines. Training-wise, though, he is one of the authorities on Dante Trudell's DC training. And most of the interview, we kind of focus on that. Don't forget, the Iron Subculture podcast is an enhanced podcast. So if you've got your iPhone iPad, something that's video enabled, or if you're just even on on your laptop and you're watching it in iTunes, you can take advantage of the video aspects, which it'll give you pictures of some of the people that we're interviewing, it'll give you slides, uh, maybe with bullet points on what they're discussing, just kind of gives you a little bit more information. Also, I recommend that everyone download the show notes. It's a PDF file that contains links to contact information for the different contributors uh, as well as websites that they might write for. Um, The articles we discussed, there's links to those. Uh, It's just a nice little resource of information. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would send me uh, feedback to my email. My email address is stevecolescott at gmail.com and that's spelled S-T-E-V-E-C-O-L-E-S-C-O-T-T at gmail. 
Let me know what you like, what you would like to see, and what about the podcast you feel sucked. I'll ignore that last part, though. First up in this episode, let's call down to Orlando, Florida, and touch base with Jose de Jesus. Okay, with us we have Jose de Jesus, who recently on November 12th won the NABA USA Nationals uh, in York, PA. Uh, welcome to Iron Subculture, Jose. Hey, thank you. Well, how long have you been training? What What are some of the shows you've placed in? I've been training for 28 years. Um, I won a bunch of NPC shows, um, starting with the 1995 uh, Sunshine Classic down here in Florida. I'm from Orlando, Florida. Okay. Uh, 1998 Southeastern USA overall. Uh, I've won the All South 2010 overall, Lakeland Classic 2010 overall. I placed third this past year at the Junior USA's and the Light Heavies, and I got fifth place at the NPC National uh, Masters National, excuse me, in the Light Heavyweight class. So you're pretty new to this, I see. Yeah. What made you uh, give the NABA USA Nationals a shot? Uh, it's just a lot of politics in the NPC, and I just want to see if you know what my other options were. It was it was getting a little too political for me, and uh, uh, there's a lot of frustration out there. Uh, you, you go out, and uh, it's just uh, it's a lot of stuff in the, in the sport. I mean, I've been around the sport way too long, and I figure there's got to be other options out there. It's always good to have more than one organization. Exactly. I kind of wish NABA was a lot more powerful because you know if you have. It's almost like, you know, the two political parties we have here in the U.S. Not that they're doing a particularly good job, but if, you know, if you only have one group in power, then there's there's no, uh, no one's trying to do better. You have a little competition, people do a better job of things, so hopefully NABA will rebound. Um, tell me about the event. It was promoted by Scott Pelotano and Kathy Ann Ferrero. York, PA was a nice fit uh, with the history of NABA and the Mr. America, which I like to think of the NABA USA Nationals as, as being a, the modern-day equivalent of that. What, what, was, what was the show like? Actually, the judging was probably the best judging I've seen in years. I mean, literally, these judges, they, they compared everybody part. They called out a hamstring pose. They called out calf shots. They called out two different most muscular shots. I mean, they really went down the list, and it was fairly done. I mean, it was it was a good judging procedure. There were a couple of guys in the contest which would have done very well at a NPC Junior National event. So the competition was pretty still. I mean, you had some really good guys there. Some guys weren't, but you had some really good competition. The guy second to me in the short class was phenomenal. I mean, when he stripped down, I was like, holy crap, what did I get myself into? So it was, it was rough. What are your views on the height classes compared to the, the weight classes that you're used to from the NPC? I'm not really a big fan of it, but and it has its advantages. I, I don't have to – I literally have to kill myself to get into the light heavyweight class. Mm-hmm. So since I don't have a weight class anymore, I really don't have to diet down as much. So it has advantages and it has disadvantages, just depending on how you look at it. What a lot of people don't realize is that uh, you don't go into it knowing what what class you're going to end up in. They kind of look at the stack and 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 pick. You know, if it's three classes, they kind of divide them into three even groups. So if you're one of those middle heights, like in your case, you were in two different height classes uh, in the open and a different one in the masters. Yeah. Yeah, which it, it kind of freaked me out because I was in a tall class in the Masters and then short class in the Men's Open. But, 
I guess I was close enough to both. Obviously, years of heavy squats make the Masters a lot shorter. Yeah. Spinal compression. And you plan to go to the universe next year? Yes, sir. I'm trying to... I talked to Scott and I talked to Bob Gruskin. They both said that I do qualify to compete in the pro universe, but they would, they, I guess they have suspended it this year because of lack of funds, uh-huh. and they're not sure if they're going to reinstate it next year. But if they do, that'll be the next contest. If they don't, I'll be doing the amateur, probably the over 40 and the men's mm-hmm. open. Why would you be jumping to the pro division of it? I've just been competing for so long. I'd like to get the opportunity to try to make a little bit of money out of this. I mean, I've been uh, competing since 1984. I've been over to England to catch one of those events, and I think a lot of people here would be just amazed at the the quality of the competitors. The the conditioning over there is is just phenomenal. You you definitely want to be show up uh, ready with thin skin because uh, you've probably gotten online and seen some things. I was I was incredibly impressed by those guys. Oh yeah, I've seen some pictures. Oh yeah, I, I would think some of those guys can really give some of the Mr. Olympia guys a run for their money. Tell me a little bit about your training. What type, what type of training style do you do you use? Anything unusual? Uh, actually, I will train pretty much every single day um, until my body pretty much tells me I need to break. So if I train three straight weeks without a day off, I'll literally train three straight weeks every single day until I feel like I need a day off and take a short break and go right back at it. And how long are the workouts? I usually do about an hour and a half, to uh, close to two-hour workouts. Okay. I'll do pretty much about 20, 25 sets per body part. Over the years, you've built up where you can handle that kind of volume. Yeah, I've been training like this for the past 15 years. And how about nutritionally? What type of nutritional program do you follow? I'm pretty low-carb. I'll, I'll probably take about 100 grams of carbs per day. Uh, proteins really high mm-hmm. and I usually supplement a lot with branch chains I, I take those all day long when you talk about someone doing well in a show you cleaned up you took the masters you took the open you took three different awards the uh they've got the Don Ross Memorial most muscular the Joe Miko best poser and the Tony Pandolfo uh memorial award you you pretty much you probably had to have help carrying all the uh, hardware home Oh, yeah. I actually had to buy uh, some luggage up there in York to bring some of the trophies down with me. You know, coming up, I'm about the same age as you. Were Were you someone who followed uh, the like the AAU Mr. America and the NABBA universe? Yeah, actually, in the mid-'80s, I competed in the AAU up in New York City, and I did a couple of events up there, so I would follow that all the time. Some of my favorite lifters were guys like Jeff King and... and uh, Matt Dufresne and, and Victor Terra and those guys that, that were just some, some freaky freaky bodybuilders. Yeah, my favorite was always Mike Antorino. Yes. I thought Mike's shape, my shape is actually really similar to his, and he's always been one of my favorites. He's actually the first person from a magazine that I that I met. Yeah. I don't know if you remember a, a company called Multipower, a protein company, that, that used to have a lot of the Mr. America winners in their ads. They had Mike uh, travel around the year he won. He went to different gyms, and he came to this little gym. I'm in I'm in Northeast Ohio near Akron, and he came to a little gym there and uh, and showed up at the Christmas party. And I, I I bugged him for about a half hour with a bunch of stupid questions, but he he's a great guy, and and I agree. He he had a phenomenal physique, and and you definitely have uh, particularly in the legs, very similar shape to Mike. Yeah, I've always tried to emulate a lot of his. Uh... 
I used to follow a lot of his routines in the magazines, in the old muscular development magazines. Whenever they would put his, his routines, I would always try to follow him. Tell us a little bit about what do you do for a living outside of the sport. Well, I'm a personal trainer. I have a small little personal training business. I'm pretty much involved with lifting all the time. I'm either training clients or I'm training myself pretty much all day long. That's all I do all day, just nutrition and uh, lifting and trying to teach, you know, techniques, proper techniques to my clients and stuff like that. Well, this title is certainly a, a nice thing to add to your marketing. Mr. Universe would be even a better thing to throw up over the door. Oh, yeah. That'll be that'll be something. That'll be a dream. Keep in touch and let us know as that show approaches. We'll definitely have you back afterwards, and you can tell us about that experience. And thanks for talking to us. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Next up, we have two-time WPC World Powerlifting Champion and co-owner of Monster Garage Gym in Gurney, Illinois, Eric Morosher. Um. Eric, from our pre-interview, you told me that you originally got into lifting because you were a track athlete. Can, can you go back and um, tell us how that came about? I think, Steve, you've got to go back to about 1987, and I was uh, at Eastern Illinois University. And a long story short is uh, I met a, a couple guys at a gym. Uh, one of them was uh, Daryl Latch. I think a lot of, of your listeners probably know who Daryl is. Um, and uh, I'm lifting weights, and Daryl made a comment, something like, hey, you're pretty strong for a little guy. I was about 165 at the time. You know, you're talking about 25 years ago. That's a lot of, a lot of pizza ago. And um, met him and lifted weights, and that is, that is where I started powerlifting, is uh, kind of with this uh, old Sunlight Power Team a couple decades ago. And from there, it turned into 25 years of powerlifting, and here we are today at the Monster Garage Gym. Eric, tell me how Monster Garage Gym came about. The gym came about, um, I had lifted at a number of mom-and-pop type gyms my whole life. It never was a, a corporate gym, not that there's anything wrong with the corporate gym. But I liked the family atmosphere of uh, a mom-and-pop type of gym. And when I moved up to uh, Gurney area, there really wasn't anything like that that I, that I knew of at the time. So I really had just a bunch of stuff uh, that I collected over... Uh, the last couple decades in like a three-car garage. And the long story short is I had kind of just put a, a little sort of a, a joke advertisement and a powerlifting watch uh, just saying garage gym. You know, I'm a guy with a garage gym. It's for powerlifting, uh, powerlifters. And uh, these guys just started showing up. And it got to the point after about two years of my garage, I've got these 15, 300-pound guys. And my wife was like, that's a lot of guys here. And uh, one of the guys was Philip Daniels. I got this email from a guy named Philip Daniels, who at the time was playing with the Redskins, and he emailed me and said, uh, hey, um, I, I want to powerlift and uh, get in shape for the season. Can I come train at your gym? And I talked to a buddy of mine, Ron Legaretta, and I said, because I don't watch uh, football, I said, who is this Philip Daniels guy? And Ronald just went on and on and on about how great Philip was. So I was a little apprehensive. I didn't know if I wanted to have uh, an NFL guy training with us because I didn't know if there was – uh, ego involved and that type of stuff, and I tell you, within the first 10 minutes, uh, we just hit it off. He's a fantastic lifter, for one. He's a great guy, too. Anyway, after about a year lifting in the garage with Phil, um, and just more guys started showing up. We had USAPL guys and APF guys and NASA guys and ADFPA guys, Ron, equipped, you name it. Um, I looked at him. I said, gosh, we just we should just open a place. 
just for powerlifters. And uh, he looked at me. He said, I've been, I've been waiting a year for you to ask me that. So we kind of joked about it, opened up a place in Waukegan, Illinois. And about a year into that, it was there were just too many guys. Um, and then we moved to uh, about a 2,500-square-foot um, facility in Gurney, and that's where the Monster Garage uh, gym is. That's where the Morosha powerlifting team uh, trains out of. And that, that's kind of how that evolved. It really was literally a garage gym, and the name Monster Garage came just as people were, like, walking by, and they're like, who are those monsters in there? And it was almost like a play on words, and it really stuck. But um, and now we've got guys uh, we've got guys like Mike Strom, who's a 198 guy, benches 635. Um, we've got Philip there. We've got a ton of lifters that are great people, but also great lifters. But it all started from a garage. I've been watching uh, your YouTube training clips, and I got on the website to uh, check out the pictures. And, you know, Monster, it's it's a beautiful gym. It's a type of place that it would be worth relocating just to train there. To me, it seems like the perfect combination of all the right equipment, great people, and a real hardcore atmosphere. We had uh, two guys last weekend, two great guys uh, from Detroit that made this eight-hour trip to come train, and they both had 50-pound PRs in the squat. And then yesterday we had a, a couple guys from Kentucky come, or yesterday, uh, Saturday, a couple guys from Kentucky make the trip to train. So you're you're right, it's it's just a dream come true. And um, any gym, I think, can have great equipment. We've got, I think, great equipment. We, we buy a lot of our things uh, that are elite uh, equipment that's good stuff, our monoliths, our reverse hypers. But it's really the people, like you're saying, Steve, and the atmosphere is, it is amazing. You, I have yet to have a guy show up that doesn't, just hit a tremendous PR right off the bat the first time they're there. And it's because everybody there wants them to be successful. It's a really positive atmosphere. Chicago seems to have a great powerlifting community. You've got Ernie France, Quads Gym, uh, Ed Cohen, Jack Tardcore. You, you guys seem to have a mixture of great powerlifting history and some amazing lifters that are still out there doing it. Absolutely. We did a, uh, a strongman meet a couple of the folks at the gym at uh, Jack Hardcore. And I had never seen those guys, uh, but I had uh, seen their webpage and, and their owner. And by the end of the yeah, you know, and he's a very intense looking guy. And I remember uh, meeting him and uh, somebody hit it right on the head. They said, is it, he is as nice as, how do I get this straight? He's as nice, as intense as he looks, so to speak. And he really is. He's a great guy, and he he just treated us like we were kings, and we really appreciated that. And I think that sums up the powerlifting community and the strongman communities, people really trying to help each other out. Yeah, I've talked on the phone to uh, Byron Hicks at Jack Tardcore. He seems to be a really cool guy. Tell me about some of the prominent lifters on the Morosher powerlifting team. Okay. Gosh, where do I start? Well, I'll start with Philip, you know, the guy that uh, co-owns it with me. Philip is a great guy. He's a raw lifter. And uh, he, as he was getting ready for this season with the Redskins, his last week training with us, he squatted a raw 800, he benched a raw 500, and he deadlifted a raw 700. So he is a super strong guy for a football player uh, because he's 6'6", and he's got these tremendously long arms. I think another high point uh, as far as our team, we've got uh, my wife actually is a powerlifter, Dawn, and she's a 148. She weighed in at uh, 138 last week, and she pressed her first 200 raw bench. 
So that that was a high point for us. We cannot get her in a shirt for the life of me. I cannot get her to get in the shirt because I figure if she had that 100 pounds of a shirt, that would be a phenomenal lift at 138. A um, couple of other folks. Um, uh, Mike Strom is uh, one of our 198s, and Mike's about an 800-pound squatter. Uh, in the gym, he goes about 650 on the bench, and as a deadlifter, we say he's a great bencher. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, we've got a new guy that just signed up with us, Alex Trinidad. He's a 148. This kid is lifting. He's 18 years old. He's lifting for uh, a year now, and he's pulling 500. He just did reverse minis with 605 in the squat, and uh, we'll get his bench up. So it's just kind of guys from all different ages and, and weight classes. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Um, some guys are brand new. Some guys, uh, you know, we got a guy from uh, Wisconsin the other day, Brendan. And uh, Brendan's a 275 guy, and he just squatted his first 900-pound squat, 903. And that was a 50-pound PR for him. Uh, but I think when you've got guys around you, you feel safe to go with the big numbers. But he's a good 750 puller, too. And then we've got some older lifters, Rob Keys. He's a, a Ph.D. in chemistry. He's an interesting guy. He's kind of a, a, you know, a walking contradiction. You don't think of a power lifter as a, a Ph.D. in chemist. But uh, Rob is 54, and he squats about 850 in the 308 class, and um, he's another USAPL guy. So he, you know, he walks the weight out. So it's a, it's a group of about 30 total guys. We won't bore you with all of them. Um, well, you're leaving out one prominent lifter. I admire your modesty, but tell us about some of your lifting accomplishments. Okay. Uh, I'm a 220, although right now I'm I'm about 227. And uh, before I had a, a number of injuries, uh, I won the Worlds a couple times in a row. I won in 2000 and 2001. And uh, I won the North America. That was a big meet that they used to have in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, that was in uh, Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. I won that in 2001, and I won the best lifter at that meet. Um, I think, you know, my best lifts are about 805 squat and uh, 671 deadlift. And uh, I never talk about my bench. I just – I think it's, it's just that the bench for me is just an inconvenience in between the two the two real lifts. But I, I say that because I I'm a terrible you. bencher. My biggest bench ever is only 460. And a 220 uh, with some new shirts, that's nothing to, uh, to brag about. But um, that's kind of where I came from. And I've gone from – 165 to the 181 to 198. Now I'm a 220, and I'm a little bit more than that. But I'm I'm looking forward to uh, my last World 2008, and I had a pretty, pretty bad hamstring tear at that meet. So I'm looking forward to getting back into the competition. I've really put the lifting on hold since 2008 because the gym took off, and now that um, now that we're we're keeping our head above water, we've got a bunch of great guys to lift with. Uh, I'm enjoying having them getting me ready for the meet. So it's kind of this reversal of roles, and I, and I really appreciate them taking the time to, to get me back in shape to, uh, to get on the platform. That's going to be exciting. We're all competing, as a matter of fact, uh, this uh, Saturday at an APF meet. Is your team composed of three lift lifters, or do you have some push-pull or bench-only specialists? Yeah, it's about, yeah, I'd say 95% of the guys are three lift guys. We've got a couple bench uh, a couple bench guys, but it's mostly all power lifters. And that makes it great, too, because the bench guys can help us out. And even our bench-only guys squat and deadlift, but it's really just to go through those motions. I'd love to get all those guys powerlifting. I'd love to get them all under the bar. I think that would be fantastic if they all squatted and deadlifted. 
What kind of future goals do you have for the team? Well, I, I think there's a couple of the young guys that I really want to see them um, get competitive, and I'd like to see them uh, set some national and world records. We've got some young guys that uh, they're very coachable. I'd like to see some of the uh, older guys uh, continue to compete. And I think one of the things I'd like to do is um, kind of get the team where we're all kind of we're all kind of peaking for a meet at the same time. There's there's about 15 of us that are going to do this meet on Saturday. And what we've realized that when we kind of get ready for the meet, we overtrain a little bit. So this is a new phenomenon for us, having so many guys prep. I think that we're going to have to make our training cycles for a meet a little bit, uh, a little briefer, a little shorter, because the energy is so high that you're kind of almost, we had a situation a couple weeks ago where, these guys get all these PRs and they kind of shut their central nervous system down. I mean, Louis talks about that all the time. Ernie Franz talks about that all the time. So I think learning how to compete as a team is going to be something that once we get that honed, um, I think everybody will do the best that a meet they can do. So that's something, just learning to kind of work symbiotically as a group of 30 guys, because there's about uh, 30 guys that, uh, that train there all the time. That's going to be a, a I think, sort of a secret weapon for us, I believe. I really appreciate you joining us in Iron Subculture. Absolutely, Steve. Thanks so much. Hi, this is John Arnita, 1987 USA, Middle East Champ, listening to Steve Colescott's Iron Subculture Podcast. We have two articles we're going to be discussing in our recommended read segment. The first one is with Ken Skip Hill. Okay, we have with us Ken Skip Hill, uh, who's uh, well known in uh, various boards, particularly the Intense Muscle Board, which he runs. And Ken, you recently wrote something from MuscleMag.com, Maximizing Recovery During Contest Prep. How did that article come about, Ken? Well, uh, with my background in contest prep, uh, MuscleMag asked me to, uh, if I was able to submit a nutrition training article once a month um, focused around contest prep. So pretty easy for me to come around and uh, focus on recovery because I'm constantly uh, preaching you know, how it's important during contest prep to make sure that you know, you're not losing muscle mass, you're making sure that you're taking enough calories and, and that sort of thing, keeping your metabolism elevated. So I jumped all over the recovery article. Okay. You know, let, let's step back just a moment and talk a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into lifting and, and a little bit about your competition background. Fair enough. Uh, my competition background is very simple. Um, it is mediocre at best. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, I, and I say that because, you know, I, from a genetic standpoint, I'm like most people out there, and I think that's why a lot of people tend to listen to what I say and, and that sort of thing, because they, a lot of them know my background, and it's just I've competed for 20 years. You know, I take a lot of seconds. I take a lot of thirds. And, you know, if a mediocre field shows up, I'll win it. You know, it's one of those things. Mm-hmm. So what I had to do early on was I had to focus on my conditioning, and that's how I got to be – uh, to the point that I am now, um, which you know, many consider me to be an expert in the, in the area of conditioning, I had to get myself into a condition 
that allowed me to be able to be competitive with the guys that really did have broad shoulders and narrow waist and, you know, quite a bit more muscle than I did. So it helped me to kind of level the playing field in a sense. I made one run at the at a national level show at the Junior USA's in 09, and that's kind of the peak, if you will, of my competitive career. And uh, in the best condition of my life, I was happy there and still got my ass handed to me. So <laughs> from there... From there, I try to focus on my clients. Um, you know, I have clients all over the world. A large part of my client base is actually outside the United States. I have a strong following in places like the United Kingdom, Australia. Of course, of what, 20, it's been 28, 29 years, I <clears throat> decided to trade in my baseball career. I was actually a pretty good baseball player and was scouted pretty young. I decided to trade that in for the lucrative sport of bodybuilding, and clearly Very it wise. out. <laughs> <laughs> How did you start your IntenseMuscle.com? Because that seems like one of the earlier sites. Yeah, you know, it's been around for, gosh, oh, it's sad that I don't know that, but roughly about seven years. And uh, it really came about, it's a long story. I'll make it short and as interesting as possible. Um but I was on another site doing some starting my prep business, you know, that sort of thing where it just starts out where you're helping people and then you start to see, well, you know, kind of, uh, you know, people are interested in what I had to say here. So maybe there's, there's potential here to turn it into a few bucks on the side, that sort of thing. But we had a run in, or I did with, um, the owner and of the other site and I'd rather not mention. Um, and it was just some things that were kind of shady. You know, a lot of the owners of these boards tend to get into, or at least did them, the business of, you know, if it's not nutritional supplements, it's um, things that are kind of gray, like research, mm-hmm. chemicals, things like that. And, of course, you know, a lot of these guys are, you know, they're scammers and, and that sort of thing, in my opinion. I know that that's kind of a bold statement. And there's certainly board owners out there and, and business owners for you know, these research chemicals and stuff that are, that are legit, don't get me wrong. Uh, but this one wasn't. So long story short, I got out of there as quick as I could. Uh, I kind of locked the, the door behind me and locked the owner out, which I still to this day I think is uh. funny. Um, started intense muscle. I started off with a couple of the mods from the, uh, you know, that old board. And, you know, it's a pretty solid team. Our, our team of super moderators has been together from day one and <laughs> We, they're there every single day. And, you know, a lot of those names are, are known from Dante, uh, True Protein, to um, Scott, who goes by Home Nonculus. Of course, he's Scott mm-hmm. Stevenson. Uh, so he does prep work, too, and, you know, Massive G. I mean, these guys come from a long background of competing, and, and their knowledge and nutrition and training is pretty extensive, considering those are the fundamentals. Uh, you know, they come long before learning about what gear works and what doesn't, uh, we've been pretty successful. And we back our, you know, we're kind of backed by the, the um, you know, ex- again, like I say, the experience. And, and you know, got combined, I don't know, most of those guys there have been there, been in the sport for 20 years themselves, too. It's, so. it's a great info source. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing very well. Okay, to get back to the article, it seems that your take on it uh, is something that not too many people even think about. concept that many people have is that when you're in a contest prep mode, you're going to lose some muscle, and that's part of it, and it's kind of planned overtraining. What does your experience show when people do not address recovery? Well, my experience, uh, you know, I'm pretty blunt 
my opinions. I just, my experience says that's absolutely wrong. Now, a lot of people, you know, I'm sure will hear this and they'll want to argue and, you know, have a nice little battle on Twitter and everything else. But, um, you know, when you are getting ready for a show, the, you know, the recovery is such an issue because, in my opinion, you shouldn't lose one pound of muscle throughout the course of a contest prep. Now, clearly, that doesn't always happen, and uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna lose a little bit. But you know, if everything's going the way that it's supposed to, and your diet is what it's supposed to be, you're not losing muscle, hanging on to it. You may, you know, sometimes even gain a little bit, um, you know, throughout the course of the prep too. A longer prep is incredibly important for that same reason because you don't want to have to shock your system, drop the calories too fast, um, increase your cardio too much, that sort of thing. I think that cardio gets lost in in the shuffle or in the argument as well because even if you're careful with your calories and you're not dropping them too quickly, upping your cardio uh, too quickly and doing too much cardio is essentially – same thing and you're going to have overtraining issues or potential overtraining issues with that as well so you know the reason that i that i focus so much on the recovery is just because this you know this argument is that happens all the time with you know um how long a prep is going to be where your calories have to be to begin with uh, how much cardio you're mm-hmm. going to put in you know and that sort of thing for the people that like to use a a large amount of, of volume when they're um in a contest prep, a lot of the times they, the reason they, they say they do that is is that they feel that uh, that glycogen depletion they get from strength training kind of is a nice precursor to fat loss. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would agree with that to a certain extent, but you know, the other end of it is do you need high volume to be in a depleted state to where you're burning body fat at, at an efficient rate? And my response to that would be no, because – the volume that you're doing in your training is not the only variable. If you have, as an example, if you have high volume and you're training infrequently and you're recovering well and you've got a higher intake of you know, calories and carbs and your cardio is not, then, then you're not going to be terribly uh, depleted uh, to the point where you're going to risk losing muscle tissue, that sort of thing. So you can still train with a lower volume and a higher intensity, as an example, and still be in a depleted state to where you're burning body fat at an efficient rate. So does the volume play into the overall? Well, absolutely. But it's it's only one of, you know, how many variables in a contest prep. So I'm not necessarily against high volume, um, you know, pro, uh, low volume, that sort of thing. I treat each person or each client on an individual basis because, quite frankly, some people – will do very well with high volume, and some people won't. So I try to gear their their prep, their caloric intake, their expenditure around the type of training that they need, and some may need high volume and benefit from that, some may not. In my opinion, though, when a push comes to shove, in the end, if I took 100 different clients with different metabolisms and everything else, there I have not seen, in my experience, any relation to they're in condition when they step on stage and the type of training as far as high volume, low volume that they use to get ready for that show. Okay. In the article, and I don't want to give away too much, you give a, a handful of, uh, of different methods for people to kind of adjust their volume. And uh, we, we won't really – we'll direct them to the article for those details. 
one of them you talk about is is something that's that's familiar to anyone that's read anything about DC training. One of the options talks about implementing a cruise week in the midst of contest prep. If someone does that, should that cruise week be accompanied by any kind of restriction in either calories or carbs? Well, <laughs> and I, I, I'm laughing because Dante hears this. He may have a different opinion. Look, i got to be careful with my terminology when I say use words like cruise and stuff. It can. I use the word cruise because it's familiar to so many people because it's a D.C. training word. But it could also be deload, uh, you know, active rest, that type of thing. Essentially what I mean by cruise and active rest is just that there comes a point where after you train at 100%, and it could be three weeks, it could be seven weeks, it could be five weeks, it's different for everybody, um, that you need that downtime to back off from 100% so that you can recover. So during that time, and this is <laughs> – you know, I have a ton of respect for for Dante in DC training, so I, I want to be careful that I'm not contradicting his approach. But my approach to taking these weeks is just a little bit different, and my reasoning behind it is simple. I don't think that the nutrition should change for that week because the focus of that week, the reason that you're doing that week, is for extra recovery. Mm-hmm. If you cut your calories back. You risk, not necessarily that you give up the recovery or a part of it, but you risk that. So if you can look at that week, a cruise week, deload week, again, uh, whatever your term is to explain it, if you look at that from a standpoint of I'm taking this week to catch up, make sure that my body is recovering well so that I don't jeopardize any muscle, that sort of thing, then you have to keep your nutrition. In my opinion, you have to keep it there the way that it is on any other training link at 100% to be able to maximize the recovery. Now, you have to factor that in clearly with your contest prep. And a lot of people struggle uh, to back off and not go at a, a you know an entire week during contest prep at 100%. But they need to keep in mind that they're not necessarily – you're not backing off from 100% on your cardio. You're not backing off 100% on your focus as far as what the end result – you want the end result to be. You're not backing off on your diet. You're not cheating. You're not loosening it up. You're not anything like that. You're just backing off on your training so that your body can catch up. That takes some emotional uh, discipline to understand that that's not going to derail the train. You know, and it's funny because with me comes a lot of emotional discipline when you work with me because (laughs) that kind of leads into other things that I'm known for, like my loading, my skip loading and things like that, which clearly isn't the focus of this interview, so I won't get into that too much. But um, there are those battles. And, you know, it's funny, too, Steve, because you got to really be careful these days with not getting stuck in an archaic and outdated approach to whether it be training, cardio, supplementation, um, you know, your diet. It's easy to do. And bodybuilders tend to latch on to what we have been told over the years, and it somehow at some point got written in stone and when you go to argue these things, people just quickly dismiss. And, you know, this is one of those things, the recovery thing as far as taking a cruise week or uh, spreading out your uh, – taking an extra, you know, day during the week if you feel that you're just you're just dragging ass. There's no sense going to the gym unless you're, you're cruising, of course. There's no sense going into the gym and going for, say, a, well, you know, I'm going to take a light workout thinking that you're going to progress and, and move forward. So – 
these things have to all be taken into consideration, and you have to really try to get in your brain and step away from those things that we feel are just, they're just absolutes. Things have to be done this way. You have to drop your sodium. You have to, you know, to move water. A lot of these things are, are myths, and we need to get around that and be able to step out of that box and experiment, and that's what I'm known for doing. I wouldn't have my loading protocol. I wouldn't have my approaches to recovery going against the grain if they didn't work. I've got, what, 28 years uh, in the sport, 20 years of competing. I've been working with people, jeez, uh, last 12, 14 years. I, it's off the top of my head. But, you know, you have to be able to take those, take your experience, get out of the box, and figure out what works and what doesn't, not what so-and-so says works and while well, I read this in the mag. It's an excellent article, and the thing I liked about it was it's a topic I have not uh, seen before, but uh, definitely something that, that people need to check out. Fair enough. I appreciate that. And, you know, let me touch on really quick. You have another article on there, an opinion piece, uh, and it's about men's physique. So tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> that hit a nerve with with more than a few people. You know, my rants, my blogs in the past and stuff like that, they uh, they tend to do that. I come across uh, abrasive sometimes. The, the reality is with this rant, and it's you know it's the reason that I that I got this gig to begin with Muscle Mag is, uh, you know I've got a lot of very strong opinions and that sort of thing. Being in the sport for so long, this physique rant was uh, just basically focusing on the new end of the sport. You know we've <clears throat> excuse me, you know we've had bikini come in, we've had figure come in, and you know we've come a long way from just the men's and women's bodybuilding that we had, you know, 20 years ago. And we're actually putting people in the seats and, you know, promoters are finally making money and be able to put on quite a show because of how they've branched out. And one of those most most recent things is the men's physique. And, of course, with it being new, just like figuring everything else, we're trying to figure it out. It's, you know, I don't want to say it's chaotic, but it, they're not sure uh, exactly what the standards are yet. Um, so I went out there and I, I kind of compared the two, looking bodybuilding to bodybuilders who move a lot of weight and, you know, the macho part of the sport, men's physique really doesn't get a lot of respect. And it's kind of funny, and I, I touch on these, I don't want to give away too much because I'd like for everybody to, to read it, but I, mean, I kind of come at the physique guys at first and, you know, kind of like, hey, you know, this is this is kind of different. Why would you want to be standing in board shorts, not training your legs, kind of looking like a model? And then I kind of go back on bodybuilders, and my being a bodybuilder myself, I've always taken uh, the chance, every chance I can to to pick on the, the bodybuilders in the way the stereotypical ways that that we act. And so I kind of come at them a little bit, and in the end, I kind of balance it out. And uh, like I said, I'm trying not to give away too much, but. I just kind of bring up some points of, you know, both sides. And to be honest with you, I, uh, I, I'm kind of glad to see the men's physique side because it does give uh, other options, I guess, for guys who want to be in bodybuilding might not necessarily have that genetic structure to get huge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that sort of thing. Plus, look, you know, as far as mainstream goes, the men's physique side is certainly more appealing. Uh, you know, these guys are more of the model type and that sort of thing. Uh, I'll be honest and say that I don't particularly care for the board shorts type thing. I still think that the 
overall physique should be trained top to bottom. And I think with the board shorts, it kind of lends itself to leaving leg training out of the equation. But I do think it's good for the sport. But I've got quite a few points in there that I think people would not only find humorous but entertaining. And you know, if they get the chance to pull up that article and give it a read. I don't want to call you out on something. I know a lot of people in the clothing industry, and I've heard that you contacted some people trying to come up with an extensive line of team skip board shorts. Is that true? <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't laugh because the reality is they just might sell. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, but for the record, no, I haven't done that yet. But I will make note of that. That's not a... <laughs> That's not a not a bad idea. Thinking not that. a bad idea. <laughs> okay, Skip, two great articles on the Muscle Mag site. We have links to them on the, the show notes that can be downloaded. We appreciate having you on the show. We're going to keep an eye on the uh, stuff you're writing in the future. And uh, thanks for uh, talking to us. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, buddy. Our second recommended read is a Maximize Protein Synthesis uh, off of the T-Nation site. And it is written by Bill Willis, who is a uh, Ph.D. candidate, and uh, bodybuilder John Meadows. Uh, we have Bill with us today. Bill, tell us what was the impetus to write this article. Well, it's been a topic that John and I have been interested in, you know, for quite some time. Um, you know, we're both bodybuilders. Um, protein synthesis really makes or breaks your effort as a bodybuilder. And, uh, you know, it's a real topic of interest on that end. Um, and also what I do in the research lab, my research very much involves protein synthesis. So, you know, I've been working on this stuff for the last five years um, as part of my Ph.D. project. So it was really originated on our end, and, uh, you know, it was, it's definitely a topic of interest, you know, as far as both John and I go. And is this the first time you guys have worked together as authors? No, sir. We also wrote an article about uh, insulin signaling. Um I think there's a lot of confusion about uh, insulin and its role and building muscle, losing fat, and, you know, regulating body fat in general. So we uh, really, with our articles, we, we aim to clear up a lot of the confusion out there that's associated with, you know, the topic that we write about. And how did the collaboration come about between the two of you? Well, you know, John's been a good friend, and, um, you know, I've just known him over the years through the gym, and, and I've kept up with his website. And, you know, I recently met uh, John at a competition, one of the local shows here, and he mentioned that he could use some help, uh, you know, with some writing for his website. And I tell you, he has some really great people write for him, and the articles are just excellent, really high level. Um, so I was real fired up to do that. And uh, John was already a writer at Teen Nation at the time, so we decided to team up and, and put some quality stuff out there uh, for Teen Nation. You know, 15 or 20 years ago, we had uh, guys like Jim Wright and, and Fred Hatfield that mixed an academic background with uh, some athletic um, experience, but they were they were kind of a rarity. Yeah. Uh, one of the nice things nowadays is people like you that are competitive bodybuilders that's, that also are pursuing advanced degrees. Uh -huh. It's really nice to be able to see that change and everything that this new generation is offering to the sport. You know, it is, and um, well, I tell you, to John's credit, um, he is really at the forefront of scientific knowledge, and he's a great athlete also, and I think that which makes him kind of a, a double threat, you know, in that regard. But you're right, there are a lot more uh, people with advanced degrees um, just putting stuff out there, which I think is great, and, you know, a lot of that has to do with, you know, we've 
we know that we need to do certain things for, you know, as bodybuilder, bodybuilders or strength athletes. And these have just kind of been passed over from generation to generation with no real, you know, scientific basis. And I think science, or science in a lot of ways is kind of catching up um, in that regard. So the uh, the principle is very much connected to the practice now. Um, this recent article about um, protein synthesis, really protein synthesis, especially as where muscle hypertrophy is concerned, has kind of been a black box. You know, 10, 15 years ago, we really didn't know what caused it. A lot of guys were working on it, but it was very much, um, it just wasn't well understood. And then the, this enzyme mTOR was discovered. And um, there's a much more direct, uh, you know, understanding between what happens in the gym and the metabolic machinery that fires up protein synthesis. So I think a lot of that um, has to do with, you know, why more academic-minded people are involved in this is that the curtain has kind of been pulled back on the science end as far as that goes, and we can we can connect a lot more dots. mTOR is something we've been hearing a lot about the past couple of years. Can you explain a little bit about that protein for us? Well, we're looking at past uh, 10 to 12 years, and mTOR, uh, which stands for mammalian target of rapamycin, has been of interest for quite some time. Um, it's really come to the forefront of both protein synthesis research and actually longevity research. It seems this is a whole different conversation when we're talking protein synthesis from a bodybuilding standpoint, but it seems that when mTOR activity is low, uh, another process called autophagy um, is active, which is kind of associated with uh, longevity and anti-aging. Um, I don't know how we connect these two uh, so far, and you know, neither does most of science, but suffice it to say that this mTOR enzyme is, is definitely at the, at the center stage uh, in a lot of different areas of research. Those of us that have been around the supplement industry for a long time, we've seen a little bit of everything. So we have to be a little bit skeptical. Right. Is uh, mTOR really going to be something useful or just a way to hype a leucine-spiked product? Well, I understand that completely. And, and I guess, you know, you have to blame the supplement, supplement industry a little bit. Um, a new buzzword is thrown out there every time, and it's almost – you know, it's analogous to name dropping. They it's molecule dropping. You know, some uh, new uh, or enzyme or protein or molecule comes out and and it's used to heavily market you know products to market supplements. And I, I think the difference here is um, you know we really started from the science end, and um, yeah, that justifies a number of products out there, but not the other way around. Um, I, a good example from the past might be. Uh, if you remember boron or bull testosterone extract, you know things like that, um, and they used obscure reference or obscure studies in the literature to kind of hype up these products that, you know, didn't really add up. And uh, this really takes the opposite approach. It, I think the science justifies a lot of the stuff that's out there right now if it's used with the proper timing. I think one of the benefits of uh, social media and the internet age that uh, that wasn't around a decade ago is with supplements. If something is a crap product, companies used to have eight or nine months of good solid sales before word got out that it was garbage. Right. Now that feedback is almost instant. Yeah, I agree with that too. Uh, things get uh, kind of skewered really quick uh, because information spreads so rapidly. And uh, that's a good thing, you know. Um, is definitely a good aspect of the, the current times we're in. Leucine has been shown to be a potent anabolic trigger, which makes it pretty tempting for lifters to eat it by the pound. 
Have they determined at what point leucine consumption has hit a point of diminishing returns? Well, you know, they've looked at that, and, and most of the protein synthesis studies, um, a dose of 2 to 5 grams seemed to cause a maximal response. It's actually closer to 2 grams. Now, I made the point in the article um, that you really have to consider the experimental model they're using and whether it applies you know, to the real world, to the guy training in the gym who's probably training harder, training longer, and may be able to assimilate more protein. Um, there is a point of diminishing returns, though, and if you eat too much of any protein past a certain point, it's either going to be excreted or turn into uh, triglyceride, and there's way more fun ways to take in saturated fats, you know, than overdosing on protein. So leucine is a very uh, powerful activator of uh, protein synthesis via this mTOR enzyme. And, um, you know, my advice would be uh, for anybody that's using it, regardless of body weight, to go two to five grams per dose, you know, period. And that's, that's on the low end. We don't want to give away everything in the article, but can you give us some specifics on what you would recommend for circa workout nutrition? Yeah, sure can. You know, the big thing is, is timing, first of all. There is this anabolic window, um, and, you know, it's over the past uh, several years, there's been debate as to whether this thing really exists. And, you know, first of all, it, it absolutely does. The literature you know, tells us that there's a, a time when if we get the right nutrients, we're going to activate protein synthesis more during the workouts, and that's going to equate to longer-term gains. Now, basically the recommendations we made based on, you know, pre, post, and peri-workout were, um, were designed around getting the blood levels of amino acids up, you know, when you need them to be uh, and adjacent to your training. And uh, we recommended uh, faster proteins pre-workout and um, actually peri-workout also um, just to really ramp up the blood amino acid levels and leucine to, you know, to stimulate the uh, mTOR enzyme. Post-workout, we go with fast proteins also, and, you know, and your, when you return to your regular meals afterwards, you, know, you switch to slower, more um, kind of constant-release proteins that support the growth process in general. So really the, uh, the big thing with um, protein intake is timing and, uh, you know, how much leucine does that particular protein have for that reason, we recommended milk proteins, uh, cashin and, and whey hydrolysates, or whey isolate is an excellent protein also. Imagine for a minute, Bill, that you were in charge of doling out grants to different research labs. Great. What follow-up uh, research would you like to see on this subject? Well, you know, it would be, it would be great if somebody, um, a competitive bodybuilder or strength athlete, were actually calling the shots on the research end, because first of all, they would look at the combination of pre, post, and peri-workout nutrition um, on protein synthesis and how that equates to long-term gains. Um, basically, everything in this article has been extrapolated um, from other papers where they looked at, you know, one time point in isolation. They'd look at just pre-workout or just peri-workout or just post-workout. And actually, a scientist friend of mine, uh, she's doing a postdoc at the NIH, Asked, well, what happens, you know, when um, when you add all this nutrition in at, at three time points? Are you going to ramp up protein synthesis more? You know, you would think so, and that's the that we made that conclusion in the article. But you know, it'd be great if that work was done. Uh, secondly, dose response studies. Um, a lot of the experimental models in terms of the training stimulus are probably less uh, less severe than what guys do in the gym. You know, hard training athletes do in the gym every day. 
And it'd be nice if uh, you know studies were designed more with the athlete in mind. Now, granted, um, the research funds driving this research um, is generally not associated with becoming a better bodybuilder or strength athlete. Um, muscle wasting is is a big uh, topic in you know medical research and an important one also. Um, so we're not using hard training athletes as models, and I think if that uh, kind of shifted in that direction, we'd we gain a lot more insight into, into what we need to do. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, Bill. I'll be watching for your articles in the future. Absolutely, Steve. It's a pleasure to talk to you. In this episode's classic clip, I did an interview back in March 21st of 2003 with powerlifter Mike Miller. Mike's known for a number of different things. He's competed in wrestling and MMA. He is the owner of Nazareth Barbell in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. He is a member of the Metal Militia Powerlifting team, and he's even done some acting, including an appearance in The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. The reason I did the interview was for an article called Inside the Metal Militia, and you can download a PDF file of that off the show notes. Here's a few minutes from that interview. You guys obviously incorporate some of the West Side method. How would you say your program differs from, from theirs? Um. West Side is, um, geez, West Side's more um, thought out, I would think. No, maybe not thought out, but West Side does more of a, um, it's more structured. Um, we kind of train and just kind of, when we go, we just kind of <coughs> let it all hang out. Um, mm -hmm. We also, the, the, we don't use bands or chains when we bench. We do when we squat um, and we deadlift. Okay. Um, I feel that they're essential for squatting and deadlift. I feel that they're a great help um, in building your overall strength and building your kinetic energy and your kinetic strength. But um, for the bench, um, I noticed a lot of guys with tendonitis and elbow problems and shoulder problems and things like that, so we just kind of decided not to use them for that. Um, some guys respond very well to them. Um, you know, you've got guys like George Halbert, who's incredible, the, the guy benches 733 pounds. I, I think he did it at 220. Mm -hmm. uh, phenomenal bencher. And uh, he's a big fan of the bands. Loves it, from, from his website, it looks like Sebastian is big into bands as well. Is that? Um, so I, I don't think so. Okay. I, I, Sebastian's not a big band guy. I know he's used them in the past, but um, he's not using them anymore. Okay. Um, I've used them, and I, I attribute a lot of my... Uh, a lot of core strength and a lot of my um, stability um, to using bands early on. I think it helped develop some muscle fiber and some muscle tissue that I didn't have when I started. Mm -hmm. I know that Bill's idea of carrying heavy weight all the time also has made for me to have tremendous stability. You know, I can pretty much on any given day, 700, I can bench, mm -hmm. which I was never able to do before. Um, I wasn't even close to being able to do that before. And I can hold the weight without shaking, you know, and that's from carrying the heavy weight. And uh, like I said, I believe early on from using the bands, um, they're a good, they're definitely a good training tool. Um, we just don't happen to use them for the bench. Okay. This is something that's always kind of interested me. How do you mentally get psyched up to go after a PR? What goes on inside your head? Um, I stand in front of the weight before I go out. Um, I, li I, I listen to a lot of uh, I listen to a lot of dark heavy metal music mm -hmm. uh, from my buddy the Axe Man. Um, he records all kinds of really good uh, crazy music, 
and uh, I listen to that a lot before I go out. And um, as I'm walking up to the bar, I look at the weights, and um, I envision the weights laughing at me. And um, it kind of makes me angry when I get down under the bed, when I get down under the bench. Mm-hmm. So that's basically my whole psycho thing. And uh, Bill will kind of crack me on the back of the head once in a while if I need a little additional oomph. Okay. You guys, and I've noticed this with the West Side guys, tend to be just big guys. And every year it seems people moving up into higher weight classes. Right. What would you tell someone that was trying to get bigger? What are some of your thoughts on packing on weight? Um, eat all the time. Um, eat, eat. You know, constantly should be eating every two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, eat dense food. Eat food that's good and healthy for you. Um, you know, the days of guys just walking into McDonald's and just shoving food down their throat um, is not a great idea. Um, the food you want to, what you put in, the kind of food that you put in your body is extremely important. Um, you want good, healthy, strong, muscle-building food. Um, stuff that's high in protein. I'm a big fan of red meat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think red meat makes you strong and it makes you mean. Um, a lot of meat, you know, chicken, things like that, they're good for you, and you should have your balance of chicken and fish, but I don't think it does for you what red meat does for you. I'm a huge advocate of, mm-hmm. of red meat. Um, and I know a lot of people say they'll if they eat uh, a big steak, they feel stronger the next day, so like before meats and things. Oh, like. absolutely. Uh, the night before meat, um, we're always eating that. I'll always have a nice big steak dinner and then some carbohydrates, pasta or something along that line. Mm-hmm. That makes um, a tremendous ravioli with spinach, and we eat that a lot. We eat tons mm-hmm. of that before uh, before a lifting day. And um, if we're going to lift early in the day or breakfast, we'll have she'll make pancakes or something like that. But um, we try to. I eat a lot of yogurt. Um, I eat a lot of cottage cheese. Um, I love to have yogurts, and this this was uh, something Bill taught me. I'll eat three of them right before a lift, right before I start benching. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a huge glycemic index buildup from it and uh, a lot of good energy from it. Okay. Um, the biggest thing that guys forget is, um, you know, what, you've got to eat calorically dense food in order to put size on. Um, and a lot of guys don't do that. I'll see they'll eat a lot of food that has a lot of empty calories in it um, or, or a lot of calories that aren't good for you. Like you take a um, you take a, a hamburger from McDonald's versus a homemade hamburger or a big steak, um, and there's no comparison. It's mm-hmm. like putting garbage in your mouth versus putting, you know, very good high-quality food in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the biggest mistake a lot of guys make. They eat candy, they eat tons of pastry, uh, things like that. And uh, that just doesn't do you any good. Okay. What would make someone, in your eyes, metal militia material? Um, I would primarily say, I would have to say primarily that the biggest thing is that they have to have heart. Um, anybody that's got a lot of heart um, and is willing to try and is willing to work hard um, is militia per- is a militia-style person. Okay. Um we have a lot of guys that have come in here and, um, you know, started. It's hard to start out with a 135-pound bench and work your way to 500 pounds. Um, it's hard. And to keep coming in here and plugging away at it and plugging away at it and sometimes failing and dropping the bar on your chest and, um, 
you know, crap like that, it's a lot. I mean, walking out of here bruised and battered, um, some of these guys, their wives aren't exactly thrilled <laughs> that they're spending four hours a Saturday down here to accomplish a goal. Um, you know, that takes a lot. It takes a lot from your family. And mm-hmm. um, most of the guys' wives have now started to come with them. <laughs> yeah. They've kind of figured, well, he's going to be here, so I'm going to come down and hang out. And that's one of the reasons we have such a tight-knit group. Um, the wives come down. Some of them are on the team and some of them work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them hang out in the lobby and uh, go do stuff for us. Um, Sandy Castone, uh, my buddy Steve's wife, and um, Vera O'Brien, Bob O'Brien's wife, come up every Saturday and they they walk around. They help guys put their shirts on. Um, they hold boards. They get towels. They get drinks. They get belts. They run around and do everything for us. Mm-hmm. And they do it without being asked. You know, they'll videotape. They'll take pictures. Uh, they do just as much work um, as any of us do and to help us reach our goals. Mm-hmm. And they're great for it. I mean, it makes my life so much easier. I can look over say, hey, Sandy, help me with my shirt, and I don't have to interrupt another guy lifting. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll come running over and give me a hand. But, um, yeah, the biggest thing with being in the militia is you've got to have heart. Greetings, Iron Subculture. This is Illustrator Gary Beck, creator of Iron Asylum mastermind behind illustratusmaximus.com. Here I am with a little known fact. When I was younger, I worked with the Mal Escort. Oddly enough, that's how Steve Colescott and I met. I'll spare you all the details and simply say that it's a result of that encounter that I probably won't be endorsing the Neil Colescott in the Iron Subculture podcast. Steve, please, lose the number. That was years ago and it'll never happen again, regardless of how many emails you send to my cell phone. Please, uh, in our psyche segment we talked to buddy dryman a good friend of mine who is also the 1994 naba usa national champion and there's an interesting story about that that many of you may know buddy was involved in a training accident in which he ruptured both of his kneecaps and crushed his ankle uh, they didn't think he was going to be able to walk correctly um a year to the day after that lower body cast was removed, uh, he went on to win his uh, national championships. So when Buddy talks about the power of a focused mind, he knows what he's talking about. This is a clip from a CD he put out of that name, Power of a Focused Mind, in which uh, Buddy talks about the value of detachment. The first thing that I've learned was the idea of detachment. And detachment is usually mistaken by most people. Detachment, usually most people think it means I don't care. If you detach, they think not interested, really don't care what happens. And that's really not, not the way detachment is meant. Detachment is really going into a situation and having a preference, but not having it be a need. So if you go into a situation and you, you know, you're like, let's say going for a closing of a house or you're going for a big test, a police test, a board exam, anything. And you go in 
And it really becomes like it's absolutely necessary that if it's do or die, if you don't have this, you know, you don't know how you're going to live your life. And what happens then is the pressure goes on you because you're thinking that way, and your whole attitude and energy that's inside you kind of makes it move away from you. And if you've ever been, I'm sure everybody in here has been in a relationship where you're the person who's totally crazy over the other one, and you're chasing that person, they just seem to, they just want to get away from you. And vice versa, if you're in a relationship with somebody just can't get enough of you, you, you start to want to just say, you know, get, you know, leave me alone. You know, you just, you know, it's like you need a balance. And if you move towards something too intensely, then you're not detached. And you're just kind of almost like a magnet. If you take two magnets and put them at, with opposing polarities and push against each other, you see how, like, there's no way they can attract each other. So if you have a detachment, a detachment is having the, the feeling and the idea in your mind I'm interested in this. This is the way I'd like it to work out. It's a preference. If it doesn't work out for me, I can let it go. All right? That's really what detachment is about. It, and when you do that, it kind of magnetizes things to pull into you. And that, that was the first thing that I learned, and that was the attitude that I had. When I went out to California for the Misty USA, I'd already gone into the Misty Eastern America. And when I went into the Misty Eastern America, it was only, I think, about 11 months after the injuries. And if I had done anything, if I had gotten even a ribbon, I would have been happy because after what happened to me, there was no way I was expecting anything. And all my years before that, whenever I go into a competition, it was do or die. It was the world. It, it was the world to me. And if anybody tried to talk to me or distract me or, or even, you know, get interested in me in any way, I would get really upset and it would really bother me. And the day of the competition, I'd be there and no one could talk to me. I would just be so, you know, like, you know, almost like if you watch, like, the wrestlers on TV, almost like this whole act of, like, oh, you know, I have to win this thing and get away from me. And that's not being detached. And what happens is, what would happen to me, I'd always end up, like, second place or third place because I had all the ingredients. I had the body that was needed to win. I had the symmetry. Everything was really there. But people can really read that in you. When you go into a situation, I mean, even if you're negotiating and you're sitting down trying to negotiate a deal, if you really, really want it and you sit down and you're like, I have to have this, they have you. You're finished. They can suck you in and pull you into whatever situation they want you. But if you have a detachment and your attitude is, I really would like this, I'm really interested, but I know where the door is and I can walk any time, then you start to control the situation. And when I went into the Misty Eastern America, that was my attitude and it wasn't it wasn't one of, I'm not interested, I don't care, I don't want to win. It was one of, hey, if things go well for me today, great. If they don't, no problem. You know, I'm still going on to the Mr. USA. I can still see how things work out there. And what I had always noticed when I would compete against people, and I'm sure if anybody has watched sports and seen certain athletes, the ones who always would win are the ones who win or who do well, more consistently, if you watch them over a long period of time, are the ones who, when that they were interviewed, they would be really relaxed, they'd be really happy, they'd be really nice, because they weren't that caught up in the whole thing. And I remember about, I guess it was 10 years ago when I was in, in a competition, and the guy who had won, he happened to be in the elevator with me before the contest. And he was being interviewed by somebody, I think, from the Los Angeles uh, Chronicle or Times or something, and he was going on and on about oh, this isn't that important to me, I'm still finishing up college. And I, at the time, I didn't really understand this, this idea of being detached. And I remember coming out of the elevator saying, this guy is full of baloney, this is so important, I'm sure he must be giving it everything, I'm sure he must be so focused, he has to win. And he did win, and it's so funny because 
he really came off as, if I win, great. If not, no big deal. And I really couldn't understand it at the time. I really would go into things with the attitude of, I have to have this. If I don't have this, don't talk to me. And, and people just pick up on that. And when you go in and you say, I'm really interested, I'd like to have this, almost like as if you're, you're not showing your hand. When I went into that Mr. Beast in America, I won. So that was great. Now, when I went out to California, because this, this uh, Mr. Beast in America was held upstate New York, when I went out to California, now we're on a whole different level, and I know I'm against people from all over the country. So again, I still had the detached attitude of whatever happens, fine. No problem. I don't care. And I ended up winning the whole thing. I won my division, and then I beat all the other divisions, and I won the whole thing. And I really think that had a lot to do with my attitude and what I projected because I was interested, I was there, I was participating, I did all my homework, but I didn't come across as an attitude. And I know my best friend had come up to me before the contest and he said to me, you're in a really good mood. Is everything okay? Because he knew me as being in a competition of, don't talk to me, I have to win, this has got to work for me. And when you go in with that attitude, you're not detached, people pick up on it and they kind of just almost like back away from you. They know you're really into it, but it's almost like a little too intense and when you reduce, when you can come out of being detached, you kind of like pull back on that intensity. And it's almost like holding your cards. You know, when you play, when people play poker and they, and they just, you just keep a poker face and you know you're interested, you know you want to win, but you don't, you don't show your cards. And people, in a way, it's real interesting because they pick up that you have something and they kind of actually then move towards you to find out what it is. Someone had sent me a letter from California. He had, he had taken him one of the photos he took of me, put it on a coffee mug, and he wrote me this really long letter. And so the, he had noticed my attitude, and he, what, I can't remember the words he used, but that he had a feeling of the, of the type of person that I was, that I projected on stage, and that, you know, he went on and on about the project, and, you know, he didn't speak to me, and I never spoke to this guy, but he picked up on all this stuff about me, which, was something that you could have never used to describe me years ago before the injury. And I'm sure everybody in here or has seen or read about how people start changing the way they approach things after like a life-threatening situation or a near-death. I mean, this is the closest thing I had to near-death because, as I said before, when I went down, the weight was on my neck and my hips or my rear end was actually on the ground and so were my feet. And if I had gone forward, my neck would have broken from the weight because it was about 350 pounds. What, luckily, I was able to push backwards and get the weight off me backwards. And I, I really was praying out loud. I know I was. I heard myself. You know, I really wasn't sure if at, the, at that split second if I was going to get uh, knocked out, passed out, and die. I really didn't know because it was just like it was as if someone actually hit me across my legs while I was in mid-squat with a baseball bat that had like a blade in it. Because I, I for a second, thought that my thigh bones both broke. Because I was in mid-squat, and then all of a sudden everything went out, and I went down. But yet I knew I was still in the same position. It's, it was a strange feeling. So after that, everything, everything started to take a different perspective. It was like, I'm interested in winning. I'm going to do everything I can. But if I don't win, that's okay. I'll come back next year. Because you start to see things in a different light. That's the first, the first point, detachment. And if you really want to remember... That it's to make things be a preference, not a need. If it's a preference, you can always walk away from it. And you'll see that you'll always, whatever situation you're in, you kind of begin to have like an upper hand in the situation if you can project yourself out that way. Thank you, buddy. Let's go on to our feature guest. Okay, today we have a guest I'm very excited about, Dr. Scott Stevenson. 
He is a exercise physiologist uh, with a PhD from the University of Georgia, a licensed acupuncturist, and um, he's the Mr. Arizona. Is that 2009, Scott? Yep, 2009. And uh, and many forays into uh, national level competition, and he's helped out uh, just tons of other people uh, with their training. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you having me on here very much. Just to start off, I should tell you that because of the similarity of our names, I've made a, a conscious choice never to grow any type of goatee because I don't want you to be falsely blamed for anything I've written, said, or have done. I, I, I definitely appreciate that. It is interesting. Our names are almost the inverse of one another. I, I get called. In fact, I was just called Steve earlier today by someone because of the last name. I'm like, okay, no problem. So I'll try to not get us mixed up as well, and I'll, I'll keep the goatee just to keep the delineation. Appreciate it. Sure. Okay. Um, you know, you, you've got a very diverse background. Let's start out with talking about uh, the athletic side of things. When did you start lifting? And give us a little recap of your, your contest resume, if you could. Oh, man. I, I think I've, I think I'm coming up now on almost 30 years of, of weight training. I started when I was a kid uh, for wrestling and then football when I was 10 or 11 and um, trained all the way through college. And then really, you know, when I started deciding that I wanted to go into fitness and exercise physiology, I kind of turned up the, um, the steam on things. And I first competed, I think my first show was in uh, 1997. Um, just did a little show in, uh, in South Carolina when I was in graduate school. Kind of had to actually sneak around because obviously I was, you know, wasting time when I should have been in the lab uh, going and, and doing something actually bodybuilding related. Um, and uh, so I did a couple shows then. I did three shows when I was in California. The did the Cal and the Southern Cal, some of the typical shows that still exist out there. And then a lot of, most of my shows have been since I've been in Arizona, since about 2003. I think I've done the Mr. Arizona either four or five times. And I think I may have, I think I may have placed second in my weight class maybe four times. Before mm-hmm. I finally won the weight class, and then eventually, as you mentioned, in 2009, I actually actually won the show. So, um, and it, you you did mention I've done some national shows. I wouldn't say I actually competed in the shows. My name is something you can look up and find that I was actually there. You might do a glance of you know catch a picture of me if you uh, you know if you look up some things on Muscle Memory or uh, a Repetrope and some of those video sites. But I really it really wasn't very competitive. I did the Junior Nationals in 2009. Uh, yeah, junior Nationals in the USA in 2009, and then finally last year I managed to get a, a decent placing. I did the Junior USA, which was really the kind of the level of bodybuilder that I am at least at this point, and uh, I got fourth in the heavies, which I was which I was very happy about. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot a lot of lifters they uh, they they stay at the local levels uh, long before they need to move on, and and I. Obviously, you're not going to improve if if you're you're dominating things. So, you know, hitting the national level that that's that had to have improved your uh, motivation quite a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. It is it is interesting when I you know I have have clients that are you know about to make that jump, um, and sometimes clients who maybe shouldn't make that jump, but you know, pretty much every time I'm, you know, it's always kind of fun to watch them when their perspective changes after they've done a show, a national level show. And you know they're used to maybe being the big fish in the small pond of their um, of their gym, and they come back and you know they're humbled and they're extremely motivated, and that's exactly what happened to me. It's you know the the comments that you might get from from your uh, 
you know, average Joe on the street says, wow, you know, are you a pro? <laughs> Not even close. I, you know, I'm playing t-ball here compared to the size of some of the people that are out there. You're just not used to seeing them. Seeing them. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a heck of a heck of a wake up call, but a good one, you know, because it, I think it gives a perspective, uh, especially for some people, you know, who really want to, uh, you know, they have aspirations of trying to become a pro before they've ever even really even seen a pro show or, or seen what it what it what it takes physique wise to be a pro. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was definitely an eye-opener, to say the least. Tell me a little bit about your study of exercise science. Uh, what what route did you take with that, and, and what areas uh, did you look into uh, more deeply? You know, I, I wanted to be um, – when I got done with college, I'll, I'll spare you some of the details here, but I, I basically figured, you know, I want to try to be the best personal trainer that I possibly can. So I wanted to go and get some, some you know, decent formal education. So I started off. Um, got a master's degree at Texas, and then I recognized how much I like to teach. Um, and to teach at a college level or uh, or above, you're gonna you're gonna need to get a PhD. And I really was big into studying, and I was digging uh, the learning, of course, too. I'm, I'm kind of a, a book, bookworm when it comes to that. So um, went on to Georgia and got a PhD, and did some postdoctoral research, and um, eventually was a professor for a couple of years out in California. But um, the guy that I got to study with, we had just talked about him here before, um, before the interview uh, at Georgia. He's now passed on, but he was a very practical, um, hands-on guy. He used to actually, and this is this is something that really serves me well to this day. He used to say, you know, I don't care what you do, you could be digging ditches as long as you're happy. And um, you know that was nice to hear because in the cutthroat world of academia, a lot of times. You're basically viewed as a failure unless you've gone on to teach, you know, at a large university. So I've taken, you know, the, the the training, the knowledge, and sort of more importantly, I think the ability to learn how to learn that I got from all those years in school. And um, hopefully I'm applying that, you know, well to help on the clients that I work with and writing some of the articles that I've, I've been writing lately and that sort of thing. Kind of bringing, bringing that, you know, ivory tower knowledge and training kind of down to the you know the trenches of of uh, you know working with people one on one and you know helping people in the real world as opposed to publishing studies that really you know don't have maybe as much practical real world value as they possibly could. So that was sort of where I, I felt my my real niche was going to be is working with people, teaching of course, which I've been doing, and um, writing and working with people one on one. Okay. And, uh, you know, you really also distinguish yourself by, by your in-depth study of Eastern medicine, including acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. How did you get into that? Uh, well, you know, I was actually, I was still in academia when I, when I sort of took this turn, and, and I had sort of a choice. I had a really good position. I was at Cal Poly Pomona, one where I could sort of decide whether I wanted to focus on research or um, or focus on doing kind of public out- outreach as well as the teaching, which they really highly valued there. And one of the things I wanted to do, of course, was be able to help people with nutrition, which I think is a huge part of just the bodybuilding picture, just in, uh, in health in general. So I started investigating avenues there, and I looked into becoming an RD, looked into becoming a naturopath, which is difficult to become licensed in many states as a naturopath. So oil and medicine just sort of made sense. So I actually took a sabbatical from California and uh, came to Tucson to study in this program here and decided that I just wanted to stay um, and one thing led to another. I ended up staying here, getting my, uh, my master's degree in acupuncture and oil and medicine, getting a license, of course, and I ran a gym for about four years as well here in Tucson. 
So, yeah, it sort of started originally as a way to um, try to be able to basically do kind of public outreach from my position as an academician, as a professor. But you got to be really careful because, you know, you've got the Ph.D. behind your name and your doctor so-and-so. If, you know, if I start telling people, you know, you should eat, you know, more sweet potatoes and less rice, for instance, then I'm immediately treading on the scope of practice of dietitians, which, mm-hmm. which is a no-no. So um, the nice thing about oral medicine was beyond the idea that you can, the scope of practice includes nutritional modifications, it's a complete form of medicine. So um, I started thinking, well, you know, I've got athletes I want to work with. Someone comes in, they got a bad knee, I can treat the knee. I can teach her digestive orders, disorders, and I can also help them with, um, you know, the diet as they need. So it just made sense as a, you know, way to kind of round out what really most personal trainers do. You know, most personal trainers are, you know, you see really good trainers are stretching people. They're basically treating injuries in a certain way, shape, or form. Um, they're they're suggesting supplements, and of course they're 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 making dietary recommendations. Um, sometimes they can get in trouble for doing that if they're in a state where they're, you know, it's strictly disallowed. Arizona's pretty um pretty lax, but the Chinese medicine was really a way to say, you know, to learn a complete, um, internally consistent form of, of medicine and then be able to have that in my toolbox mm-hmm. so I can uh, apply that to people. How do you resolve the conflicts between Eastern and Western views of medicine? Does your mind flip almost like someone that's you know, speaks two languages that all of a sudden starts <laughs> thinking in Spanish? Yeah, you know, maybe, you know, at some point, like, of course, you know, within the scope of practice, I have to, like, phrase things uh, in terms of the, you know, the Chinese medical terminology. So I might, you know, talk about you having kidney indeficiency or, you know, cheese stagnation or something like that. And that's what I would, you know, technically legally treat. But I'm also always thinking about in terms of the Western stuff, and especially because I've, you know, got a lot of knowledge there and training from my, my years in graduate school. Um, and in, in Chinese medicine, literally in, in the um, the approved programs, there's roughly 500 hours of Western medicine included so that you can interact with doctors and can understand, you know, what's going on medically. I have, you know, clients will bring in x-rays, um, they'll bring in blood work, those sorts of things, so that I can at least take a look there. Um, and a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times um, you can find, like, literally almost direct correlates between Chinese medicine and something you'd see in Western medicine. And Chinese medicine also, you know, takes the same symptoms that, that you know, constitute a disease, basically, in Western medicine and would lump those into a, what they call a pattern um, or even even what are diseases in Chinese medicine. It's another way to look at it is use Chinese medical diseases that often correspond to Western medical diseases. Um, so, yeah, I sort of, I guess I'm sort of bilingual in a sense. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not so much that I get tripped up because I blend those things together. Um, so you know it's uh, um, I can think over the over the course of years, uh, you know, I'm able to kind of merge those things in my mind the way I work with folks. I tell you what though, initially, um, you know, especially because you know the the training as a an academician is to be a doubting Thomas. You know, show me the data. How do you mm-hmm. know that? You know, I don't believe you. And you know, I had these, uh, you know, instructors telling me things, you know, and the basic way they know this is because people have been doing it this way for thousands of years, and this actually works in clinical practice. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't look those studies up, at least not in English, and read them. So I had to, like, you know, say, okay, just sort of suspend my disbelief. Let's see what happens here. And I gradually learned through the things that I saw as an, as an intern, 
um, you know, watching my my instructors work on folks as well, um, that, hey, this, this stuff works. Um, and people ask me that same question. I, I sometimes I'll go back to uh, kind of like the analogy, um, the analogy that I've used is, you know, if you talk to a physicist, they're going to tell you that, you know, really the way the universe works, at least what we think now, is this has to do with quantum mechanics and um, relativity theory and that kind of stuff. But then Newtonian mechanics, you know, the, like the you know the stuff you use to figure out how far a projectile is going to move and that kind of thing. That's not you know, that's exactly what's really going on. But I tell you what, that's just, those same sorts of rules have helped people put airplanes in the air, you know, help people put a man on the moon if we believe the, we actually did that. Mm-hmm. So that Newtonian mechanics, that you know, that those rules of physics you learned in you know in your physics class in high school or in college. You know, they're not the penultimate understanding of the way things actually are, but you can apply that paradigm, and it works tremendously well. So whereas, you know, if I tell you you have kidney yin deficiency, I couldn't, you know, you know, take your kidney and, uh, you know, stick a needle in there and try to draw some yin out and find there's no yin in there. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work that way. But I can apply that paradigm and um, use that, treat that accordingly with the, with the herbs, with the diet, with the, with the needles. And um, and you can reverse the symptoms that suggest Chinese or kidney indeficiency. So if it works, it works, and that's kind of the bottom line for mm-hmm. me. Do you think that, and not to get all Oliver Stone on you, do you think that there's a concerted effort by traditional Western medicine, the academic community, to discredit some of the Eastern medical disciplines? No, I really, you know, I think it's it's just kind of the opposite now. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of physicians that are really uh, embracing alternative medicine. I mean, the NIH has a you know whole division for examining complementary alternative medicines, and um, you know there are, there are so many you know people being treated for so many different things. I think you know slowly but surely, all those individuals which um, you know the acupuncturists we kind of we kind of say acupuncture is the wastebasket of Western medicine. You know, all these uh, these patients who kind of slip through the cracks because whatever uh, unusual diseases or maladies they have just don't, don't seem to be treated by Western medicine, they eventually go to an alternative therapy. And when and if they find, for instance, an acupuncturist who helps them with that, um, they go back to their primary care physician, maybe because they need to for regular checkup or that's what their insurance pays for, and that information gradually filters back. So, you know, I'm finding a lot of a lot of doctors are very um open to that. Some, you know, some still it's not within their training and they, you know, they have to, you know, it's a it's a CYA world in the in medicine, you know, so you can't you know, be talking about things that you weren't really trained to know about and understand, so they, you know, they sort of kind of block it out. Mm-hmm. But I haven't I haven't I run into a, you know, a couple I run into a couple of doctors who just didn't uh they just didn't want to believe that anything that, you know, had been done with acupuncture needles possibly could have affected the outcome that, in my opinion, it did. Um, but for the most part, they either just, they don't know, and they're they're all for whatever their, um, whatever would help their patients, or they really embrace it, and then a lot of times they'll, they'll form a, you know, referral type of um, relationship with an mm-hmm. acupuncturist or two. So... No, not so, not so much Oliver Stone. I think people oh. are opening up to this stuff. Okay. Before we move on to the next section where we're going to talk a little bit about dog crap training, let me play this clip. I uh, gave someone uh, a phone call to kind of dig around about you a little bit. Here we go. <laughs> All right. My name is uh, David Henry. I'm the IFPD uh, 
professional athlete. I've been a pro uh, since November of 2002, and I met Dr. Scott Stevenson, I uh, believe, around 2004, and ever since then, actually, we've been uh, pretty good friends, and uh, he's, been, he's been instrumental, actually, in the last uh, several of my years, probably since around 06, uh, in getting me in the shape that people see. Uh, his knowledge and everything. I wouldn't trust anyone else uh, with with myself, with my thought, with my diet, uh, my training, and anything else. He's also my acupuncturist uh, several times. That actually is treating me for a lot of things. Uh, TMJ. Also, I wrecked a motorcycle in 2004. He he uh, helped facilitate the restructurization, I guess, of, of my kneecaps on uh, both knees when I wrecked my motorcycle. Great guy. <laughs> uh, he's been a real good friend to me go out of his way, he'd give the, the shirt off his back. Not a bad word about the guy. He, he's the most experienced and uh, knowledgeable individual I know. Uh, smart, definitely the, the smartest guy. And he practices what he preaches. If you look at him, he's uh, put his he's put his knowledge to work on his own self, and he, he brought home uh, several titles along his years as well. Sounds like he read that right off the index card you read out for him. Yeah, he actually kept the email, and now I can give him the other 500 bucks that I promised him if he actually said that, those things, so that's cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> How did you and Dave hook up? In the, in the gym, as I expected. He, uh, like he said, he had, he had moved to Tucson, and uh, he just they just come over to the, one of the Gold's, the Gold's gym here that we, we trained at for quite a, quite a while, and uh, I just ran into him. I think I asked to work in with him on a you know, leg press or something. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't recognize he had just gotten his pro card. He just had, he hadn't competed as a pro. He turned pro as a middleweight. And so we introduced ourselves and I, and I said, Dave Henry. I'm like, why do I know that name? This was literally months after he just, you know, just won his, uh, his class at the, at the nationals as a middleweight. And he hadn't done a whole lot of national level shows either. So it wasn't, you know, like someone who'd been on the national scene for years and years. You know, I, I didn't recognize that Dave was a, Dave was a pro. Um, you know, we figured it out pretty quickly, of course. So we just, uh, we seem like we're a good match as far as, uh, as far as training partners goes. Um, Dave likes to train pretty hard. I think people kind of know him for that if they've seen his videos, especially. And, uh, um, I got a few screws loose myself. So, uh, you know, we had a good time training. Of course, at that time, you know, for me, um, and really any time, to be perfectly honest, the chance to train with somebody who's an IFBB pro, and I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners, you know, would say this too. It's like, geez, this is awesome. I mean, it was just just phenomenal just to have met a pro. Mm-hmm. You know, first and foremost, second of all, to get a chance to train with someone. So, you know, I was, uh, and I probably had a little uh, little starstruck look in my eyes as well at the time. But you know, Dave's, as he said, you know, we've gotten to know each other pretty pretty well, and Dave's a great guy. So, um, you know, we we became friends. It wasn't you know wasn't me 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 trailing the pro around the gym. It was you know two guys with, with similar ambitions as far as improving themselves as bodybuilders, having a good time uh, moving some heavier weight around. You know, let me ask you this. Was Dave training DC style at that time? No, you know, I I think at that time I, I might have actually been training DC and um, Dave was training in a more high-volume manner. And, you know, I, I had deferred to his his training style um, and immediately became, within a matter of a couple months, became sorely overtrained. Um, I have a poor ability to kind of put on the brakes, um, so every every set kind of you know everything you can do. And after that, you know, I, I uh, after you know several months, I said, um, you know, Dave, this is a training program I know about. I've looked this up, and a lot of people are making really good gains here. 
the time I didn't know uh, Dante um, Trudell. I didn't know, um, you know, a ton about DC training except what I read online. I said, you know, Dave, let's give this a shot. So we started doing, uh, you know, to look back at my training logs, probably a pretty bastardized version of, of dog crap training back then um, together. And, uh, um, you know, him, me kind of showing him what I thought I knew. And eventually, you know, um, I said, Dave, I think, you know, it would make a good idea. I and mean, this is your career here. Probably get a hold of, get a hold of Dante, talk to the man himself and, um, you know, get him to train you. And at that time, Dante, um, somewhere along there, those, that time, I'm not sure of the exact, exact timeline, but Dante had also become a, a super moderator on Intense Muscle. Um, intensemuscle.com where I was a super moderator so we kind of got to know each other Dante took on Dave and took on me there kind of secondarily as, as Dave's training partner and um, as they say the rest was history we started doing it the real way okay. you know what's, uh, what effects did uh, did that change have on your physique and your progress the thing that Dave noticed and I noticed and a lot of my clients now that, that do DC training a number of people that Dante's trained other people I've seen her do it is um it tends, well, one, I, you know, I started getting obviously a lot stronger. <laughs> um, you know, immediately the, the program is really kind of almost the first time you do it, um, if you haven't done uh, a formalized progressive overload based strength training program, is really, um, it's almost uh, kind of mind boggling when you watch how fast you grow. It seems, uh, you know, Dante obviously put a lot of years into developing this, but first and foremost, you get really strong. Um, I noticed obviously I was putting on muscle mass as well. Um, I was kind of growing at that time anyway. Uh, and I can, you know, tell you the history of how I kind of came to figure out that DC training would probably be a good one for me. Um, and I also started noticing when we added in the stretches, which I hadn't been doing, um, that, uh, and this is something Dave noticed as well, it seems to bring out a lot of uh, separation in the muscles, mm-hmm. especially in the quads, a lot of stretching, that, you know, pretty heavy stretching that goes on with the quads. I just noticed kind of a degree, um, more of a visual effect in muscle separation, um, you know, that, you know, not something you probably could quantify other, any other way aside from just noticing it in the mirror or looking at pictures. Mm-hmm. Okay, for those that are unfamiliar with the program, can you describe the basics of DC training? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's, um, you know, it's really kind of, uh, people, people get really confused and, you know, say it's sort of, a, you know, confusing and complex program. It's really, it's really kind of based on basic uh, tenets of, of training, principles of training. Um, so it's progressive overload based. First and foremost, you got to have a logbook. And the idea is to uh, beat your previous performances on the exercises you choose to incorporate into your program. So for every muscle group, you're going to have three exercises that you rotate through. And um, you'll split your workouts up into either a two-way split, which is basically an upper or a lower, or a three-way split if you're someone who's more advanced or if you get to a, a point where your recovery is kind of reduced in your pre-contest, you go to a three-way split. And you rotate through those three exercises using your um, using your logbook um, for each muscle group. So, so one focusing have, on one of those in that particular workout and then catching the, the second exercise the next time you hit that body part. Yeah. Yeah. So you might, if you're doing a two-way split, you might train upper on Monday, lower on Wednesday, and upper on Friday. So, you know, if you're training chest on Monday, you might do an incline bench press on Monday. Friday, you'd come back around. The second exercise for chest um, might be an incline barbell press. And um, the next time you train chest would be Wednesday. 
of the next week, and your third exercise might be a decline barbell press. Um, those are three that you choose to choose for pecs. Um, and so the following workout, which would be the next Monday thereafter, you would come back to that first exercise for chest that you did. And you look at your logbook and say, okay, I got this number of reps. Um, you know, I either uh, exceeded the rep range or um, I didn't, I stayed within the rep range. Um, I need to figure out whether I need to add a little weight or stick with the same weight and try to improve on my reps. And every time you do a workout, you look back at that previous workout and you try to beat the performance for every exercise in that workout. So aside from, of course, your warm-ups, all the real major working sets within every single workout, at least when you're in a, a period of the main period of training when you're quote-unquote blasting, when you're really trying to progress, add strength and size, you're trying to beat a previous performance. So um, you're constantly being challenged by that by that logbook. And, the, you know, the thing people like to say is rape that logbook. Mm-hmm. You know, beat it to smithereens. That's your, that's your enemy right there. It's looking at you every single time you go to pick up that uh, that working set weight and saying, can you beat what you did before? Um, so it's, you know, it's very mentally uh, uh, difficult as well because there's no like, oh, I, you know, I feel kind of, you know, I'm not, feeling, I'm not feeling it today. I think I'll, you know, just do a couple extra sets to make up for the fact that I just you know, don't want to push the heavier weights today. Mm-hmm. In, in DC training, you can, of course, do that. If you get to that point where you're feeling that way, Chances are you'd need to take a take kind of a break from the heavy training and do what, he, what Dante calls a cruise. Um, but if you're in the middle of a blast, you would either, you know, kind of buck up and uh, strap on your bonnet and get under the bar and, and make it happen, or um, you just take the day off. You know, just literally say, okay, I do actually need a break, and it's better to take a day off now um, and then come back really rested the next time I train this muscle group because I get two extra days of rest. Um, and then kill it, then, uh, you know, kind of do a, you know, kind of pussyfoot type of workout for that particular day. And with the, uh, the blasting and the cruising phases, what's the length typically of those? You know, that could, that could go, generally I would, you know, I tell people anywhere between six and 12 weeks. Um, it really kind of depends on the person. Everyone's recovery ability is different. Um, and, you know, it depends on, you know, how far you, for instance, are into uh, an off-season. You know, if you've been blasting um, uh, all out and, you know, gaining weight and your weight's sort of plateauing, you're kind of getting to the point where you might be wanting to diet down for a show, for instance, or if you're not a competitor, you want to try to drop some body fat for the summertime or what have you. Um, you know, you, your, your blast might be cut a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, some people can just go, 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 especially when they're first – starting off with this program and they're not using the, um, you know, tremendous weights that some of the larger, more advanced guys will use. So the, the thing about the blast that, um, you know, and it's not set in stone. I've, you know, I've had some people, um, you know, read somewhere on the net that, you know, it's eight weeks and that's what you do. Or I've even had people think it was four weeks before. Um, I'm not even sure where they read that. But you have to be in tune enough with your body as, you know, at least an intermediate or advanced kind of guy to kind of know, that, okay, yep, uh, you know, I've had about four workouts in a row. I'm really having to kind of dig down deep here. I'm feeling really drained, um, and I'm starting to kind of overtrain, so it's time to end this blast and, and to take a step back and, and do the cruise. You know, I've heard a, a lot of people over the last year or so talk about doing DC training and then 
alternating that with one of the other, you know, popular types of protocols and go back and forth between the two. Do you see a lot of that? You know, I, I have noticed a lot of a lot of guys who like to do that, and um, you know, I haven't seen people doing that uh, uh, a ton, um, long enough at least for you know to say whether that might work better than just doing straight dog crap training. You know, I, everyone's different. If that is what if that what keeps you motivated, and you know, you know that you're going to do you know your eight or ten week blast, whatever it ends up being on on DC, and then you're going to switch to another another program and that keeps your mind um, bright, it keeps you happy, keeps you excited about it, then that's going to work, you know, without a doubt. So, um, you know, Dante says it as much as anybody, you know, dog crap training is not the, the end-all, be-all. It's not the, you know, the, the greatest thing since, since sliced bread. Um, you got to find what works for you. And, and even, even Dante, the, the thing, the program that you'll find on intense muscles where, you know, a lot of this information is archived and there's tons of, questions have been asked almost everything imaginable has been asked and answered um, almost dozens of times in some cases um, is that Dante's got just he's got the basic basic uh, outline out there and actually a lot of sort of advanced tweaks and things that he will do and change but when Dante works with someone or when I do um, there are lots of tweaks that uh, that happen a lot of things that will be changed um, you know, I know uh, Dusty Hanshaw, who is working with Dante right now one-on-one. Dante really isn't taking on clients, but he's got a couple people that he that he does help. And he's, Dusty is kind of Dante's last client, so to speak. He's really busy with his business. But Dusty's um, legs respond better to high volume. Mm-hmm. And they figured this out. Of course, they you know, they tried the standard things that Dante would do as far as what you see is this is dog crap training, leg training, typically. Um, you know, but Dusty's a guy that's, literally bending and breaking regular straight bars in the gym. You know, mm-hmm. get, have to get power bars and those sorts of things just to handle the loads he was using. So, you know, everyone's different. So, you know, what became, quote-unquote, really dog crap training for Dusty is something that, you know, 90% of the people would, would not need to do, you know, until they become, you know, a guy who's 260 pounds in contest condition on stage. Mm-hmm. I actually have some of Dusty's uh, leg workouts on my computer here. We're going to be talking to, to John Meadows in a future episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he's helped uh, Dusty with, I'm not sure if Dusty's still using his techniques, but uh, he put him through some things. So uh, so John is going to talk to us about that. And I know a lot of people switch between John Meadows, his, his very bodybuilding Centric, um, higher volume type training with with the DC, so it, it seems to work well together from yeah. what I've heard. John's John's programs are obviously really well. I mean, just the, the proof's in the pudding. Look at him. Look at Shelby Starnes. You know, these guys are doing really well. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the the sets and, and in particular, uh, basically, can, can you give us a little structure of a workout and talk a little bit about the rest pause, how that. So, like, say, pick a body part like a chest, and how that would be put together. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the the sort of intensification techniques that, that Dante uses, uh, it's not done on every body part, um, mainly for safety reasons. It doesn't do it on would do it on squats, for instance. Um, just too much chance of literally passing out or dropping a bar, or tweaking your back. But on a lot of the pressing movements, um, pull downs, those sorts of things, you'll do the do the rest use the rest pause technique. And he, uh, he came up with that name based on a technique that Mike Menser uses, which is kind of similar, but it's really fairly different in that you're, you're, um, 
performing repetitions when you're pretty close to failure. In Dante's case, uh, what he kind of figured out is that it's, it's about it's ideal to do uh, um, rest pauses in a way where you basically you take a, a given weight to failure, and this depends on the rep range you've chosen for your rest pause set. Take a take a set to failure. Um, try to finish on a negative two if you can, so you've got a, a partner there to help you bring the weight back up to a starting position. Take uh, 12 to 15 really, really deep breaths. You want to try to move as much oxygen, exchange as much carbon dioxide as you can, and then pick that same weight up again and go to failure again. Um, try to finish on negative, all the same things you did before. 12 to 15 more breaths, and then do a third failure point, um, as many reps as you can. So you're, these are all failure points, um, and that's the main part of your rest pause set. Uh, thereafter, you take 12 to 15 more breaths, and um, and also do a static or kind of a controlled negative. And there's there's different techniques you'd use on this, but basically, uh, for instance, if you're on an inclined barbell press, you've got a good spot, of course, you just unrack the bar and um, do kind of a pulsing negative where you bring the bar down towards your chest until you reach the point where you need to get it pulled back up by your partner. So that would constitute one basically triple rest pause set because you've got three failure points in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically what you, what you do is you, you pick a rep range for all of the reps that you actually perform. So if you went um, nine and three and two, that would be a total of 14 reps, rest pause. So if you have a rep range of 11 to 15, you got 14. You might look at that weight the next time you come around to it and say, okay, I got 14. I was pretty close to the top. I'm feeling good today. I feel strong. I gained three pounds since the last time I did this exercise. I think I can go up, you know, 10 pounds on that exercise and still stay in the 11 to 15 rep range um, and maybe even, you know, break through the rep range. So you do that for, you know, most of your chest exercises. You do it for um, uh, shoulder exercises. You do it for tricep exercises. You do it for, for lat pull-downs, lat width exercises. Um, he's got some different things that are done, which you're probably going to ask him about, like Widowmakers and the way he trains calves. But the rest pause is, uh, you know, the thing that people mostly – People even just, you know, they say rest, they think of rest pause and they think dog crap training. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, you know, equate the two. Well, that rest pause, it sounds like what you're basically doing, you're getting, at the first part of a set, you're you're basically just fatiguing the muscle to get the, the benefits you get from those last few very hard reps. It's like compressing three sets where you're getting the best of those three sets with more um, work density because uh, it's crammed into a shorter time period. Does that sound accurate? Yep, yep, exactly. I mean, those, you know, the, when you go for that second failure point, you might get, you know, three, four, five reps. That will depend on the rep range you're working in. But, you know, those reps are all near max effort. So, you know, those, you know, if you're doing three sets of ten, you know, those first five reps aren't that tough. You do, um, you know, three rest pause sets, and, you know, you get three or four reps at the end of that first set, and then the rest of the rest pause reps are, are tough. Mm-hmm. So those are the, the most intense, highest muscle activation, most muscle being activated types of reps. So, yeah, it's, you're shooting for quality here um, and, you know, it improves the intensity relative to the volume that you, that you do. Uh, when we spoke on the phone not too long ago, you mentioned a, a study that looked at the muscle activation during a rest pause set. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I, you know, I actually corresponded. Um, uh, Paul Marshall is the name. Dr. Paul Marshall is the name of the uh, – the investigator, and uh, he did he did some interesting things. He's he's basically just starting off on a, a, a line of research to 
to kind of examine um, muscle activation um, during different types of resistance training protocols. Um, and in the way he actually had these uh, um, uh, subjects perform a rest pause that wasn't quite the same as how they're actually done, and according to Dante in the gym, he had them just shoot for a gold number of reps. Um, so they would, I think, finish out with 20 reps. And that last failure point could have been, you know, their third mini set um, and could have been their fifth. Um, I think they averaged about 2.1 sets. And actually, we're doing squats, too, which is something that, that Dante wouldn't necessarily have folks do. Um, so, that, you know, as far as what they found in their study and how, what that, how that applies to how people actually do rest pause sets, it's not going to carry over one-to-one. They did find greater activation during the rest pause sets, I believe, um, but they weren't able to, to uh, discern any more fatigue with the particular kinds of fatigue tests that they did. Um, they had people finish that last rep, um, whether it was a failure rep or not, when they got to 20 reps, and then do kind of an isometric, um, I think it's an isometric squat thereafter. So you can imagine in some cases that last rep for someone might have been the third rep and literally the last rep they could have done. Mm -hmm. And in other people, they may have, you know, gotten accumulated so many reps that that last rep was just a single rep, and it was an easy one. Mm -hmm. So um, not much to say, but, you know, I, when, I, when I talked with uh, Dr. Marshall, he, you know, he had, uh, um, you know, told me that they were actually testing out some new, new uh instrumentation in their lab and, you know, measuring muscle activation during a dynamic squat is kind of a big deal. So they're just starting off. He's, I think he's got every intention of really, um, you know, utilizing the sort of rest-pause protocol and, um, you know, seeing what he, can, uh, what he can figure out as far as why that might be a more effective way to train for, for muscle growth and muscle strength. It's always interesting how the, the scientists are at least a decade behind. They're proving the stuff that people have been doing for a while in, in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, um, you know, he's, he pays attention. He's, you know, I could tell in, in, uh, in talking with him, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's on the boards. He's reading things. Um, he knows some of the people who are, you know, involved with dog craft training. He actually contacted Dante after he did this. So, um, you know, and that's how I, I came to, to be in contact with, with him was through Dante. But, uh, yeah, yeah, things slow in research. It's, gosh, and that study, you know, it, it hasn't even, he sent me a, a copy, but it hasn't actually even been published in its complete form, at least as of a couple of weeks ago. And, and he probably started that thing two years ago. Mm -hmm. So it just takes a while to get through the uh, editorial process. Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Widowmaker sets and how those are implemented. <laughs> Basically, the Widowmaker, like the, like the moniker says, the idea is that you're trying to kill yourself. Um, the way I explain this to people um, who have never done one or, or never seen one is that, you know, someone who, who really is you know, not used to seeing people train really, really hard might watch you and think literally that you almost have a death wish when you're performing this set because your attempt during a Widowmaker set um, is to extend the set as long as you possibly can without putting the weight down. So um, these are typically done, uh, you know, the sort of the atypical, the, the typical Widowmaker would be a, uh, a back squat, barbell back squat, mm -hmm. without racking the weight. And really it's, it's almost like doing a rest-pause set, in a sense, um, except it's got a built-in safety in that, you know, you're not putting the bar down and picking it back up. So the fatigue is going to be a, maybe a little bit less, <laughs> but they're, uh, they're not easy for any, any means. So 
usually a widowmaker as a target uh, number of reps of about 20. So this would mean uh, you pick up the weight, you maybe uh, do 12, 14 reps, something like that. Um, a, a, a nice strategy for this is to take the step very close, not quite to fail, or initially the number of reps, not anywhere near, near failure. Don't fatigue yourself out and create sort of a, um, uh, a strategy to stay under that bar and keep that weight either in your hands or on your back, whatever exercise you happen to be doing, as long as you possibly can and grind out reps. So you may do, you know, 12, 14 reps, take four or five breaths, three or four breaths, do two or three more reps, take a few more breaths, do a couple more reps, another few breaths, take a couple more reps, then take five breaths, do a single rep, five breaths, do another single rep. You basically just keep on going. Um, you know, you've, you've probably seen people do these uh, types of squat exercises uh, contests on, online. Or the famous 20-rep squat routine that was popular throughout the 50s through 80s, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the idea is you're just putting everything you possibly can in there. And, you know, I, I even told people who have these, imagine, you know, if you put that bar down that, you know, you're going to die, that's it. You know, you're dropping in a pit of lava or, you know, your girlfriend's, you know, someone's, someone's got a gun to your head, you know, and they're going to they're gonna take you out if you, if you rack that bar. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's everything you can possibly do. And it's, it's not, you know, not like a regular set where you just kind of go until you, you know, rep after rep after rep until you fail. This one is, you know, literally like you're trying to torture yourself. So, but they, uh, they're highly effective. And usually, at least for legs, you know, Dante puts those at the very end of a leg training session because after that, you know, you're not really worth much at all. It's pretty much that. You know, mm -hmm. throw up maybe and go home. Okay. Um, another aspect that's unique in DC training is the uh, the extreme stretches. Tell us a little bit about mm. that, and that would follow a Widowmaker set, probably. Correct? Yeah. Well, the, you don't. You know, actually, I, I thought that initially. You don't really um, do the stretches immediately afterwards, um, but you do want to do them after training each body part when they're, um, you know, ideally when the muscle is still pumped up somewhat. Um, and the idea of stretching, Dante originally kind of came to this, I think, in you know, reading some of the um, some of the research on the stretch overload models to use, where they can hang weights off of quail's wings and, mm -hmm. and measure muscle uh, muscle growth, you get a lot of hypoplasia in that sense. And, uh, and I think basically you had the idea that you know we want to remove any restriction possibly to muscle growth, and this this could be simply the you know the fascial sheath that surrounds the muscle, as well as the possibility um, you know that something about the stretch also has an anabolic effect. Well, if you look at those those animal studies, um, the stretch overload studies, and that's that's something that's going on. That's chronically all day long. Those you know, or half of the day, those those weights are hung from those those birds' wings. So that's that's a heck of a lot different than a 90 second stretch you do in the gym, you know, once every four or five days. But as it turns out, it's kind of the genius of Dante. He you know, this research wasn't even out there when he was developing his uh, his uh, protocol with the stretching. He generally has people do, um, you know, do these stretches anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds. And with the weights that you're using, um, and you'll know if you've done these, you're really not getting any blood flow in or out of those muscles. So, you know, if you're someone who maybe uses a, like a 100-pound dumbbell on a, on a dumbbell press for your rest pause set, you might pick up an 80 or even a 90-pound dumbbell and do this stretch where you go into a deep stretch position holding the dumbbells out wide and hold that for a minute to a minute and a half. Um, and your, you know, your, your pecs feel like they're about to rip from the bone. Hopefully you don't, you know, you don't push, push beyond, uh, 
you know, reasonable pain level and don't injure yourself, but this is, you know, pretty, uh, it's pretty intense pain-wise. That's because the, the metabolites are accumulating there. Um, and as it turns out now, you can, uh, you can look this up on Medline. There's a number of really, really interesting studies that are coming out where, where they're doing occlusion training and finding that you can occlude blood flow just like you would with a, uh, a stretch, like a dog crap extreme stretch, mm -hmm. and train with weights that are even as low as like 20% of a one rep max. And I actually read one study where they, they just had people walking, just doing walking, and you can create muscle growth, hypertrophy. Um, and they use so some type of tourniquet type device? Yeah, I use a blood pressure cuff. A lot of times they'll do like knee extensions, they'll use a blood pressure cuff and just you know pump it up far beyond what would you know occlude blood flow and, um, and have, them do, have people do regular training mm -hmm. with very, very light weights. And... Uh, you know, I've, I've done some blood flow occlusion stuff before as a subject, and I know it's not pleasant. I've done you know, hand grip exercise with occlusion, and uh, yeah, it's, it's not the funnest thing in the world, but um, it's really interesting that these types of, uh, these types of uh, stresses actually work. There's actually one study that was also done by a Japanese group where they did um, isometric training with about 60% of a maximum voluntary contraction. That's, that's pretty close to the kind of weights you might use for... Uh, an extreme stretch if you're doing one with weights, and they were able to elicit muscle growth that way. And I think I think they totaled about 90 seconds um, for each training bout, which is about the duration of an extreme stretch. So you know, there's a couple of different lines of of uh, research. At least that one study with the isometric training, that's what you're doing—an isometric hold with the extreme stretch, as well as all these occlusion studies that are coming out that suggest that there's there's sort of a, a separate um, or at least, you know, a, a, a particular hypertrophic stimulus that's being imposed just by doing that stretch. Um, so there might be something, you know, just to the stretch itself. Uh, you know, when, when we spoke earlier, you used the, the term contact inhibition. Tell me how that uh, might work in this. Yeah, that was that was just like a, you know, kind of a, a wild ass, a wild ass guess type of thing. But yeah, that's that's sort of the idea. Um, you know, that you see when you put cells in culture and, and if, you know, once they sort of um, start butting up against the edge of the culture dish and they start coming too close to one another, um, being in contact with one another will inhibit them from multiplying. Um, and, uh, you know, it would make sense um, that, you know, muscle cells, if they're, you know, encapsulated, and this is, you know, really kind of purely theoretical here with, with you know, some, some possible explanations, but Really, it's more like this. This sort of makes sense, um, you know, that if you've got muscle fascia that's too tight, muscle's not going to grow, and there there may very well be a way that these the muscle cells, you know, kind of in a contact inhibition type of manner, may be sensing, um, you know, that there's um, there's not enough room to grow, and this you know this could be simply you know if you've got fascia that's extremely tight, for instance, like someone who's got a compartment syndrome happening. That'll happen sometimes in people who, um, who get shin splints. The tibialis anterior wants to grow and grow and grow, and the, and the, the fascial sheath over the muscle is just tight as anything else. Um, of course, because of the pain of the shin splints, um, and you get lack of blood flow there too. So mm -hmm. you know, a muscle that's that's in uh, muscle cells that are encapsulated by a really tight um, epimysium, the fascial sheath around the muscle are not going to grow if there's poor blood flow and poor nourishment and not enough space. It just kind of makes sense, you know, kind of from a teleological standpoint. So, um, 
But, you know, couple that just so that there's, there may be an effect of just having greater flexibility in the muscle so that you can, the muscle can grow when you're not training it. But also seems like, you know, in these cases where they're showing muscle growth with the occlusion training or even the, the isometric training, there's not, you know, in these folks, you know, they're not reaching the extremes of, of muscle size like you see in advanced bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to, you know, they're not going to have a problem there. But you get a guy, you know, who's, you know, 5'9 and, you know, walks around at, you know, 275, 300 pounds in the off-season, something like that, a really big national-level, pro-level guy. Um, and they're trying to add some more muscle mass. And you'll see a lot of those guys, they've got poor flexibility. It may behoove them to, uh, you know, add some stretching in there just to allow some room, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, great information. And we definitely, you know, we're going to keep in touch and have you back on here to cover some different topics. Steve, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, Dave, if you're listening, thanks for the words. Again, uh, your checks in the mail. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Steve. On that, I close another episode of the Iron Subculture Podcast. I want to thank this episode's contributors, Jose De Jesus, Eric Mrosher, John Aranita, Skip Hill, Bill Willis, Mike Miller, Jerry Beck, Buddy Dremen, Dave Henry, and of course, Scott Stevenson. I appreciate your support, and I'm going to ask a favor of you. First off, send me your feedback via my email, that's stevecolescott at gmail.com. Secondly, please like my Iron Subculture Facebook page. My personal page is almost maxed out, so please make use of the IS fan page. And three, and most importantly, tell your friends about the podcast. If you're a regular on a bodybuilding or powerlifting forum, tell people about it and post a link to the show. Mention us on your blogs or your Twitter, Facebook, and other social media feeds. If you could do a link there, that would be ideal. Um, I need your help to get the word out, and it's something I'd really appreciate. Okay, I've already done some some of the interviews for the next episode, and it is absolutely going to kick ass. So, this is Steve Colescott. I'm always listening, and I hope you will be too.